0: Was that shit not hard as fuck? I thought it was. That's actually John Music's new band. The episode last week, they are called Born of Hate. And that song was uh, Hell on Earth, man. I just thought it had a nasty bass line in the beginning. And that could, you know, but John Music, who played plays bass in that band. Um, I don't know, I just like that song a lot. And I should have played it last week but I didn't going forward by that shit. It's on uh, the fucking YouTube on Bandcamp, Like I already said, um, this episode is brought to you by Squarespace. And that is a lie because <clears throat> I just wanted to say that this episode, I have Joe hardcore on. Holy shit. Yeah. It's not, hes not Detroit. Everybody knows Philly hardcore, but you know, he's very important to the scene. Very important to Detroit. He's had a long relationship with, uh, Detroit bands and people from Detroit just for fucking ever. He's always booked their bands and gone on tour. He's always come here. Lots of good shows. Seen with Shattered Realm a couple times. Never seen Punishment. Holla. That band's so tight. Um, we talked about a lot of shit. Like I said, we covered Yeah, you know, this is hardcore and what bands we missed and a real most important question i wanted to ask him coming from him is what is the best philly cheesesteak in philadelphia because i'll be going there eventually for at least this is hardcore one time or another i was going to go last year i had my shit all fucking booked i booked my uh, my airbnb had a car rented the only thing you know i didn't have was this is hardcore tickets cuz they never went officially on sale Hopefully this year will. We talked about that whole canceling and, you know, what his idea was and plans were. And obviously it never happened, but that's okay. We got 2021, motherfucker, making shit happen, regardless. And we talked about the Gangland episode and shit like that when he was involved with FSU. Crazy shit. Um, Good times, though. Great conversation. We've all... We've all uh, transformed ourselves and transformed our lives over the past, however many years it's been, you know, for the better, which, you know, it's like an ask for. just uh, fucking like grow as a human and move on, and a lot of people have done that, and if you haven't, hey, be yourself, it's fucking great, I love everybody. Thank you for checking this one out. It really meant a lot for him to come on and take his time to do this. He's the man. Check out his podcast. This is Hardcore Podcast. He's the fucking man. Welcome to the motherfucking Terror Zone. All right, Joe Hardcore, here we go, man. How you doing today? Now I'm doing great.
1: Thank you for having me on your show.
0: Yeah, early Sunday morning. Figured you wouldn't be hungover, so it'd be easy to get you earlier.
1: I get up at uh 4.30 to 5 every day, so my... Early get up on a Sunday is like eight. Yeah. Maybe seven and, and usually I'm awake at seven going fuck, I gotta get to bed by eight.
0: Yeah. I think I got you beat, man. I wake up at like, like two thirty on the weekdays. I'm to work by like three fifteen and I'm fucking in a truck.
1: God bless. Are you are you out by one or two or are you doing like 12 13 thirteen-hour
0: shifts? No, no, I'm usually off before eleven a.m. I'm like eight hours. Dude. I got it fucking sweet.
1: That's we pour concrete in the summer, and I fucking hate the summer and I hate the heat but they'll say two o'clock start. And I'm, I would much rather work that those hours or anything. You have the whole day and you can nap. It's beautiful.
0: Hell yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, let's just get into it. Um, <clears throat> I Not some of your history from like the other podcasts I've listened to, but for somebody who hasn't caught it, uh, you know, how did you, uh, you know, get into alternative music from the get-go and, you know, hardcore specifically, you know,
1: I was raised in a very uh, unorthodox house. Um, my parents, Parents were absolutely younger than most parents, so there was never like something that wouldn't be a direct relationship back to what would eventually get me into hardcore. Be it Black Sabbath records, Ozzy Osbourne records on my floor. My mom wrote graffiti, and when she was a couple years—I mean, my mom had me when she was 17, but she was writing graffiti at 13, so she was really big into, be it Parliament, uh, Funkadelics, and then you know heavier metal stuff. My dad was in the rocking stuff. When they split, my house was basically um, a hair metal party house. So there was tons of people in my house, and eventually I was exposed to thrash metal. Later on, uh, someone who my mother knew made a tape because she said, oh, my son listens to metal, and on that tape had Agnostic Front, Carnivore, um, a lot of different bands that would basically be the window, but consequently... Seeing people that are older than me in the neighborhood that I was friends with, older cousins, little by little exposed me to that kind of music. But by the time I was eleven years old, I had a f- like full past my shoulders long hair. I I was wearing Metallica, Megadeth shirts and was completely in 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 all about thrash metal. Then later, death metal. My mother was booking actual like rock bands, and her boyfriends were band dudes. And I was allowed to go to all ages death metal shows. And then consequently, because I was hanging on South Street, which is a strip in Philadelphia that had a lot of record stores, we were basically like looking around and see a show on a marquee. And I went and seen Biohazard, was sick of it all. And Sheer Terror was my first hardcore show. And I was only 13 years old, but I was already like completely exposed to heavy metal. I had older friends, so it was easy to go to shows. And from there was like the downward path towards going to just shows instead of doing most of what normal people do.
0: Damn. <clears throat> How old were you when you went to that uh, Biohazard show? I was 13 years old. Fucking 13. I, mean, no I was actually
1: – I was actually. Uh, that was the year I turned 13, I think, because that was April. I was 12 turning 13. But at the time, there was all-ages death metal matinees at a small venue called the Cell Block. And I live in a really shitty neighborhood and my mother was well aware that being a white long hair kid in a pretty bad neighborhood, wasn't a good look. So she was kind of like, if you guys all gonna go down to the shows together, like, you know, I never went there. I didn't go to a show by myself till I was almost like 18 or 19. Cause there was always people that we would get on the train with. And we lived one or two blocks from where the train station started. It was an elevated train, the L train. So a big part of Philly hardcore, Uh, for our neighborhood was just meeting people on that train or like bisecting people would take the the buses that would get to the train that train was 16 stops from our neighborhood to downtown the first eight were all bad retarded neighborhoods like ours and you just started linking up with people to see a cool shirt a cool patch and so we were never really alone so it was another you know when i say like oh i was going to shows yeah by the time we got down to the show there was already like my first show, I went with about five or six people who were probably 15, 16 already in high school. And by the time we were, like, by the time I was doing shows, like 1997, I was 16, I booked my first show. I mean, we get on an L train. There might be a whole L car full of people because our neighborhood just kept getting more and more involved. So. It's weird to say, oh, yeah, I was 12 years old, but I wasn't like a by myself person for quite some time.
0: Yeah. Lots of older, you know, some sort of older brother types, you know, just on the train going to the same place. You get to recognize them, you know, familiar with them, you know, as the shows go on and shit.
1: Yeah. So like even when I was uh, I was six, I was 16 years old, had to quit school because I was going to be a dad. Wasn't prepared for it. Um, me and my best friend. We would just listen to records. I got him a job at the bowling alley I was working at. And my mom knew I was super bummed about like basically my whole life changing because I was going to be a dad. So she got us tickets for the agnostic front reunion. And there was like a window of like two days where I didn't think I was going to be able to go to New York. And my boy Carmen's like, dude, we got to do this. Agnostic fronts were coming back. And after we saw that show and came back on the train the next day, we were just like, fuck this agnostic fronts back we're not i mean literally i was like oh gonna have to be normal and get a job and you know not be able to go to shows as much and i was like fuck this agnostic fronts coming back i'm like i'm not giving up Mm -hmm. on hardcore and it's a it's a weird thing to think about but that really was a energizing point where there was times when i was taking a train and sleeping on the train station because uh we would go up to north jersey And the train would stop running the one from Jersey to Philly at like 2 a.m. And we would miss it. And I'd have to wait to get on the next train to go home. You know, there there was actually a lot of uh, traveling that we would do like that from the time I was like 16 to 18. Just so I stayed involved in hardcore because the rest of my life was pretty shitty. So I guess uh, to the short question is I went to shows at a very young age because I was already allowed to go to death metal shows and metal shows. And then once I found hardcore, it was pretty much the complete change of my entire life.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I started off by going to like punk shows, wasn't so much into metal and like death, deathcore and shit like that, or death metal. It was just. I started uh, with, uh, like, Dropkick Murphys, uh, the casualties, like, the dirty, like, uh, street punk shit. You know, oh, just, yeah. that was my influence. You know, like, people I bumped into, like, wearing, like, uh, 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 the casualties with, like, Liberty Spikes and shit. Like, these people are fucking crazy. But I liked it, you know, at the time. In,
1: uh, in our neighborhood, there were punks and skinheads who were older than us. And I actually lived down the street as, like, a single digit digits child, From one of the punk venues And I remember my uncle And and the neighborhood Were like Go inside Punk rockers are coming Because they basically Didn't want the punks Walking down the street So because I was a child Of the 80s I used to see the big The big mohawks The spikes And I thought it was The coolest shit But there was no one really At In my scope of influence That were really into punk But through going to Metal shows I saw it a lot And there was a lot of Transfer over And when I When I talk about metal shows I'm talking about like Seeing um, like Cannibal Corpse, and I'm trying to think of some of the smaller shows. Like we would see Cannibal Corpse, Testament, um, the beginnings of like when um Dying Fetus would sort of start saying like Suffocation the first time they came down. Like this is like 1990, 1991, 1992, and then we would go down to the Trocadero, which is like a room that like was still well known and very famous, even though it's now it's closed. And that's where you would see the bigger concerts and like. I was allowed to like legit stay outside to get tickets, which is such a archaic, anachronistic thing now. But like we would go and sit outside and wait to get tickets. Like we didn't see Megadeth. Um, I see White Zombie and the Ramones, you know, like and Danzig, Guar. But in that, there's so many interactions with people. In South Street specifically, there was a street of uh, stores that was more like hip hop, but a ton of like legit old school punk stores that have been around forever. So we were exposed to all the punk stuff. And in fact, and when I was talking about going down on the L trains, there was a casualty show in a squat in a neighborhood now that's like every house is worth well over half a million dollars. And I think there was like 50 of us on the train to go down and see casualties and violent society. And that was a show that I try to mimic in 2013. We basically did a venue that was shut down. It was a bar that I used to live over top of and they were closed, but we had the keys to it. And when Electric was still on and we did Casualties And one of the bands Tribe 13, from this area to try to mimic that same show So I, I grew up as a long hair But appreciated all that And our neighborhood was kind of crossed between Long hair dudes that were into hardcore Straight up like hood rat looking kids That were into hardcore and punk And then like dudes that were wearing army jackets And fucked up clothes And kind of listened to anything from like Casualties To Sick of It All, Agnostic mm-hmm. Front And a lot of dudes that shaved their heads So um, I never, I was never good at adorning myself and like to look extra, you know, I'd like to say like hoodies, <laughs> yeah, hoodies, pants, combat boots, you know, um, the skinheads in our city would take fresh cuts, Doc Martens, and none of us had the money for Doc Martens. So we were wearing like, uh, Vietnam jungle boots and like, you know, like combat for boots. Sure. But, um, I would say that seeing the casualties as a, as a kid before they got big and like, I mean, this is like, A year or two before there was ever even a warp Tour And like a squat Gave me such an interesting perspective To like, okay, punk shows literally can happen everywhere And we would later go to um, A place called Stalag 13 Which is out in West Philadelphia And I seen like the Ducky Boys And a lot of punk skinhead stuff A lot of um, like D-Beat shit Like everything possible there There's like a DIY venue And um, yeah, so I I listened to all that stuff at the same time Just to think a different era before that
0: yeah, fuck. Yeah, I know. It's weird, because I was all into, like, uh, you know, the street punk, and then I started working with somebody who was, who he used to be into, like, punk, then he moved on to be, like, a skinhead, but then somehow he crossed over into the hardcore scene, so, like, everything, like, he found, like, he would say, you gotta fucking check this shit out, like, it started with, like, uh, Agnostic Front, this was, like, it's like two thousand three, like two thousand four. It's like Agnostic Front, uh, fucking Death Threat. You know, like he would just hammer me with all these bands, fucking Blood for Blood. Like he would just, it's like burn me CDs. Like, here, check all this shit out. I'm passing on to you because fucking somebody needs to know about this, you know. So I, I was sort of just exposed to everything at once, um, you know, and then it was just like full on from there because you know it just got me excited more about the uh, lyrics than, you know, the music. You know what I'm saying? Why the hardcore lyrics,
1: especially the bands that um, find when you can relate to a band, you can you 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 absorb the the lyrics and the content a little bit deeper. And I all those bands you listed, like you know, are all formidable bands. That uh, there's a reason why, even Death Threat and uh, who's probably like the, the like the youngest band of that, their their music is something special, but it's lyrics that that Aaron writes that really keeps people and every generation get binds into those lyrics. It's pretty cool, man. And I think sure. that like the punk lyrics, like obviously, you know, uh, punks and skins, <laughs> you know, like you're going to have the, I love the casualties I still booked them, but That's at some point, crazy. yeah, I mean, well, I like, you know, there's just something classic, but I think the, the hardcore lyrics are stuff that resonates more with people than I'd say yeah the, um the, your your cookie cutter average punk band not to say that about casualties because they're one of my favorite bands
0: yeah yeah no it's it's just a different thing and i never i never identified with the holy like, extra thing like you said too i never had the liberty spikes i was normally like a shaved head um you know i think the worst i got was maybe like a studded jacket <laughs> i wasn't wearing the fucking straps and the boots and all that stuff but you know i still appreciate those people
1: I I'm envious. If I uh if I could run it back, I would have went all out and dressed like a mix between like demolition and a road warriors from from uh but I, I was so I gotta remember I was young and on top of it, a lot I mean hardcore nails a little different. You could be like an eighteen-year-old kid and you're kicking everybody in the room, but like sixteen years old, there was a serious pecking order. So you had to know your place. <laughs> and like yeah. if you would have came out. If you would have came out super punk rocked up, you would have got beat up. If you would Quick. If you would have came out perfect boots and braces, all dudes would have fucked with you. And there was kind of a need to know your role and slide into your role. And so, you know, I, I, I dressed the way I dressed. Still kind of have, a, I don't know how to dress like a normal person. But um, I don't think that I ever did one style perfect. And uh, I like when later on they came out with like that your scene sucks, well like the perfect. I, I never, you know, I never wore the tightest pants. I never, I have, a, I have, have a shit ton of Fred Perry's. I got a, you know, I've got Harrington jackets. You know, like I got the stuff, but can never have a full look. But if I could do it differently, ostentatious and just not give a fuck would definitely been a way more badass thing to go for just because fuck it. But back then it was a little bit different.
0: Yeah. It'd be awesome now, you know. You can fucking wear it and say, "This is the way I want to dress today." So what, you
1: know? <laughs> I, I give full, I give full credit to the kids that are able to do that now. And um, I book a lot of different shows, like Leftover Crack, and um, we had a bunch of different bands that have come through, like even like Toxic Holocaust and stuff like that. Oh there's yeah. There's this, there's this draw that comes from kids who are way open to just dress as they feel. And I, in thinking about what we didn't have was Instagram and Facebook and this like image to project. These kids have these images in front of them all the time. So they're trying to like match and meet that projection. So you see kids more into their look than we were. We were not really concerned with looks as much.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like a fashion show still, you know, but that it is what it is. But it seems like as they grow older, they're not so interested in the way they look anymore or or care how they look because i think there just comes a certain age to where you're just over how you look and like who gives a fuck now you know
1: no absolutely i think image is a image is a projection and that's the case for all things and then there's also like there's something special when you're like putting your shit on like for us this is going to sound like a little fucked up but like there was way more involved with like like Especially at big clubs Like sneaking weapons in Making sure everybody was there at the same time In case like we had a lot of beefs With people uh, as a city You know less like singular crews, but like a whole city knew like This is a show where a bunch of Nazis are coming Out so like it was the Unwritten rule and then it became like The rule like everyone met up somewhere else And then came down to the show together And there was like you know the hardcore version of that opening scene is the gangs in New York when everyone was getting ready. Everyone's like, "All right, getting brass knuckles, hiding shit in your shoes." You know, um, that's why I first shaved my head was I got tired of getting in these stupid fights at shows and someone grabbing me by my hair. So I started shaving my head solely just because, you know. But I I, I looked more like a wigger with a shaved head and combat boots, like big pants, <laughs> you know, big yeah. sweatpants, combat boots. Hoodies, you know, but everyone at shows wore wore boots, so you get tired of getting your fucking samba stepped on by some two hundred pound dude
0: with boots on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no shit, man. i mean I was always the uh, two hundred pound dude, so I didn't fucking, you know.
2: Now,
1: my now, now, now I've crested well into the two hundreds. It's a, it's, de- it's definitely the way
0: to go. Yeah, nah, I mean, um, you're looking good, looking good, Joe. See ya, you know. On the side of the stage, most times there's a uh, there's progress that that has happened.
1: Yeah, I definitely I was I got fat for a bit. I've gone through a couple of stages where I've grown my hair out, and then um, four years now ago I grew my hair out for a bit, and I just looked like trash. <laughs> I shaved my head. I started doing jujitsu, and I lost a shit ton of weight. Yeah, but being someone in a I was a kid in the pits through my entire you know early teens into my 20s even into my 30s but like as a kid you're moshing with like grown fucking men and they're like full ass muscles (laughs) they their biggest scary yeah so like having not you don't you wanted to make sure you had boots on because your toes are
0: getting crushed fuck yeah yeah man i know the feeling you know especially going to this place called uh, harpo's in detroit like i've gone to a few like a smaller venue shows but the first time i ever went to harpo's and you know Uh, Jamie from hate breed. He'll say if Harpo's is a fucking favorite venue in Detroit. Um, and I seen them and agnostic front and, um, I think it's love is red played with them as well. And that's the first time I was in a room with like crazy skinheads, like, like a thousand people on the floor, just getting fucking smashed in between them. And I was like, so this is what it is, you know, like a real big show. I've been into the small venues, but when it's fucking packed and everyone's on top of each other, some people are trying to hardcore dance and others are, you know, so you're just getting like smashed by grown men cuz they want to do the push thing but there's like you know like 15 kids that want to you know mosh the hardcore way. <clears throat> it's fucking scary when when you're like 16 17 years old, you know. Yeah, I was a
1: that's a great description of what it's like. Um it's a weird thing. I tell people now it's like uh the time that I got into hardcore hardcore dancing started being a thing, but it wasn't something that philly hardcore people naturally did there was a couple people who would dance like that and then it was my age group and our group of friends because we were traveling beyond philly and we're going to jersey and upstate pa and long island and the city and that's where like what is now most recognized as hardcore moshing was like more prevalent in Philadelphia There was a lot of punk rock A lot of old skinhead dudes There was two-step in A lot of the old school stuff Like, you know, you'd see it Like, I don't want to use the stick of it all The video as a reference But it was still a more traditional Mosh style And then in like 97, 98, 99 As we were older and more people were, The the pits got more violent And then going to metal shows Was used to be something we could do And kind of like mesh well Like Fury um Fear Factory, Marauder, and Starkweather in, like, 94. That was something that wasn't, like, a million fights. But then, like, it's just seeing, like, any metal show, because we're moshing now how hardcore people mosh, there was constantly fights. But there was that moment in time when we were younger and you got the stage divers, you have got the old metal heads who were just pushing, and you had this weird quasi, some older hardcore dudes weren't really feeling the change over to the kick-in and all the other stuff. But, um... It's definitely that chaos moment And actually something that's lost now Because shows are so Coordinately organized As far as how a mosh Pit goes down That it's very few times In the last couple years where a, I've been knocked on the ground and like Oh fuck I'm gonna get crushed or Knocked over and uh, There's also not a shared Pit moment everyone's doing the same dance At the same time Whereas like I did a show for Slap shot, Um, and it was a packed bar room, and it was like a circle pit, and dudes just punching each other, and it was chaos. I got knocked on the floor, and I was like, "Oh fuck!" (laughs) Like this is real. This is like old school. Like, oh shit, I'm on the ground. You stop
0: my boots. Yeah, you
1: didn't know. Like, like like, I'm like, oh fuck, and like that moment of oh fuck is so lost now, that um, it's I, I like um, there's another time. The first time, um, I did Cox Bar. I did. I booked Cox Bar and uh, Cro-Mags played before them. Now, I booked the 1st Chrome. Chrom—actually, it's yesterday was 12 years since the first Cro-Mags, which we now have to call Cro-Mags. JM did a show. Yeah. I booked the very first show in Philly. And I was on stage the whole time, just mesmerized. But uh, when I did them a couple of years later with uh, Cox Bar, I've seen Cro-Mags a couple of times now. You know, we did them there was nothing cooler than that show because it was exactly what you just said. There was punks, there were skinheads and the pit was crazy. And it was in a bigger room than even the first show we did. And again, I got knocked on the floor and I'm like, Oh shit. And it reminded me of that young fury of like chaos and not knowing what's going on. I kind of missed that, man. I wish there was more of that chaos.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It seems uh, even the hardcore shows could be the most violent. It seems like you can knock down, you're not on the floor for that long, you know? Someone's gonna pick you up, it seems. At least in Detroit anyway. Used to be. You're fucking knocked on the ground. You're getting smashed. But there seems a little bit be a little bit more unity these days where, you know, if you fall down, someone's gonna grab you, which, you know, I appreciate at this older age. What was, <laughs> like your, what was,
1: what was your what was your first like Detroit hardcore
0: show? Like your first real one? Mine? Well okay, well, well the first hardcore show that I went to, I didn't know it was hardcore. It was in um uh two 2000- thousand Maybe summer 2004 Um, it was uh, Righteous Jams actually. Righteous Jams, oh, you know, it was an outbreak. They played at a at a skate shop in Dearborn, Michigan, uh, Refuge Skate Shop. Yeah. It's because of it the guy that I worked it, with, the guy that I worked with, who I said was showing all those bands to me, his band was opening for them. Uh they were called Ambush. Well, it was X Ambush X, but you know, yeah. it was just like a small thing, you know, nothing big. But he said, whatever, come check this shit out. I was like, okay. And well, I thought his band was like it's sort of like the righteous jam sound maybe a little faster um but to me that sounded like punk i you know i was like i don't know I was like, how is this hardcore because i've heard of a, of terror already and like he showed me that shit i was like i don't hear no breakdowns in this stuff you know um so i've seen righteous jams and outbreak and that's the first time i'd ever seen like a side to side pit you know like people like you know, running back and forth and um creepy crawling and shit like that you know because i was used to just like like punk push pits and so that's what interested me is seeing them like two step and the side to side, just getting fucking smashed against the wall and shit. Cause it was in like a garage. And so, <laughs> um, that show, I would say was my first hardcore show, but then maybe a few months later, it was either uh terror and unearth had played at this bigger venue oh, with, uh, with, uh, with a converge, I believe terror converge and unearth and, like that so that was the first time i ever seen uh, terror play man and that's if you want that to be one of your first couple shows that's the one to see you know cuz so they had already been established everybody knew who um scott vogel was they had their uh lowest of the low was out i believe already too so that was fucking intense to see people like uh diving off uh, like uh, the balconies and like the uh pa stacks like 15 feet in the air and shit so, so that was a good experience, you know. And from then on, like, this is what I like. This is a fucking crazy show. Like, people getting punched in the face and, you know, fights. So that's what I really, really like the most.
1: There was a show that this warrior played in 98 in uh, Detroit at the St. Andrews Hall. And we knew Cold Life through them coming through town. You got to remember I was 17, turning 18. Okay. Me and the dysphoria roadie Ray Ray who's a dude who's always On the post America podcast Me and Ray are not Big people and we go to this Show to see Coldest Life and dysphoria And we're on like the obviously we're the Roadies that were loading in and we're like Holy shit we're in Detroit this Like, This And it was everything that we Thought Detroit shows were Until the band started playing Because we were you know going To like Fury 5 and all Or And the Detroit moshing was more like if you took uh, wrestling, bikers, punk rockers, covered the entire floor in like beer and everyone smoked as they're (laughs) moshing. And there's like bottles broke. And there was like a minute when Dysphoria started playing. And, you know, as roadies, we like to mosh for the band. We're like, you know, supporting. Right. I I, I I I think I got across the floor and moshed into one dude and got thrown. And I was like, All right, I'm done. <laughs> yeah, it's some big boys, man. <laughs> yeah, it's like, but like we always say, and I've said it on my podcast a bunch, it's like we went to Col- we went to Detroit, and there's like actual dudes with real face tattoos, like way before this whole thing, way before. Oh yeah, trap rapping, and <laughs> uh, and uh, dude, it was like grown men with full beards and handfuls of like biker rings, oh, and it was the just a- and D's <laughs> on them and shit. Yeah. Just a different level of, like, interaction. And, like, it's interesting. Like, there was never fully dressed down skins, but dudes had shaved heads. There was never, like, Detroit at that time frame, it was so just a different universe than anything I encountered. That whenever someone's like, oh, they're from Detroit, I have to, like, remember, like, it was only, like, two years later and we would be driving to, like, Ypsilanti. And that whole hardcore scene wasn't there Like, you know, like yeah. i always seen, I only seen that one other time um, In 2001 Above This World, which was like a Mikey Hood Project with a bunch of dudes mm-hmm. And this warrior would come through again And we would play in Detroit And then there was that same chaos And I'm like, it's just something in the crazy Detroit order at that time that made Those Detroit shows nuts And then by the time Shattered Realm would come through In 2004, and then again in 2005 in play, there was those people who were definitely all from those shows, but the mosh culture in Detroit had and then organized and changed more into the standard way that people mosh now.
0: Yeah that's what I was going to ask you um so so did so you were already booking shows i was wondering did you already have a relationship with with some detroit bands like coming through philly or you know wherever you had booked shows at the time cuz i know you probably had a few cities you would book out of um so there's a few detroit bands you know in the early days you know the coldest life and the hate inks and you know all so, those uh, dogs of war so um
1: first off it's a weird bizarre thing that you probably have heard people talk about but for those of you who listen have not And before the age before the internet you would look at tapes and you would look at cds and read thanks lists and you would read the thanks list not to be see who was like getting thanked but also to read the band names and it was like um like the way someone would go into a tomb and read hieroglyphics so like when right. you would read a if you would read a band from out of town shit You would read their band names You know like there's all these like Almighty lumberjacks of death And all these like weird bands from Michigan That we were reading we were like What the fuck does this band sound like You know like Dogs of War was uh, still to this day One of the greatest fucking names ever And yeah. Enzo's the fucking man but like, Shout
0: out to Enzo yeah, Dude that's
1: my fucking boy But like <laughs> legitimately that's still one of the co- Actually at that second show I was talking about He, sh- <laughs> he showed up Three doors wearing a Luchador mask. So it's like, all right, what's, what's up, motherfucker? And he's got mask. They're fucking mask.
0: crazy. I love, love them.
1: But like, that's the thing is, so I was aware, um, I was first aware of Cold as Life because I was a fan of the Agnostic Front live at CBGB's, and they shot Cold as Life out on that record. And so um, Ron passed, the era of demo tapes and trading became a thing. And Cold as Life never let Rick to Life have their tapes after a certain point. So you had to get Cold as Life tape secondhand from either a friend, listen to it in the car, and hope you could go see them play. Same thing for their hoodies. Like their hoodies were like the greatest quality, like thicker than anything, obviously, because I live in Michigan, can't no thin ass hoodie. Right. So um linking up with those guys and at that show, buying like a couple hoodies to take home. And getting demo tapes—that was a big thing about being a roadie. But this Sworia, because we traveled a lot on the East Coast, and I would always talk to everybody like, "Yo, I, I book shows, get demo tapes, and try to bring people out." And what had happened is it took until we would—it took until 1999 or 2000, actually. We—it yeah, was 2000 when I got to bring Cold as Life. But they—I didn't get like a weekend show. I got like a Monday night show. Mm. So my 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 only time doing Cold as Life with the lineup that. I most consider Cold as Life Was um, Not the biggest show But we had Death Threat, Mushmouth, Cold as Life Disworry and a band called Victory Strike The singer would be in Horror Show Now he's in that uh, shoegaze band Nothing But there might have been only 70 people at it And so it was hard in the beginning For us to bring bands from out of town out And that's why I started doing shows Was much like All big city scenes There's little piece of pies Where their own little Groups of people like certain bands And so my first inertia To book shows was that There wasn't the kind of bands that I was fucking with Getting shows Like people would wear their shirts And maybe they might open For a bigger show at a big club But like I wanted to see the bands I was really into And that my friends were into And so I had to start booking my own shows But it, would, it wouldn't be till It wouldn't be till we linked up with Lenny and Kat, When he was doing Cast and Fire and stuff where we had like a way big, and that's because those guys are more connected. And at the time, um, that's like those are the kind of bands that traveled more, you know. Like, um, in like 97, 98, 99, Coldest Life would come out like once or twice a year, they didn't really come out so much. And when they came out, you kind of followed them. And then when Punishment started playing in, the, in 2000, Mike and um, the band kind of switched up a bit, and Jeff stopped playing guitar and singing, he just sang. And then they were playing a lot. And that's when I got to book them when Jeff was just singing. And um but it, there was a there was a hard time for shows because of the venue problems that we were having because of all the like we had legitimately like actual gunshots and people shot outside of shows for Nazis. There was a lot of stabbings, there was crew shit. And so the venues that we were initially working with from like 97, 98, 99 all those shifted almost on the dot at the end of 2000, and it was harder to get shows. It took me till the end of 2001, which I did that Cold as Life show, to find a venue where I can kind of pull bands in. And I feel like that is an era changing year because a lot of scenes had a shift. Like, oh, it's 2001. You saw certain bands like Cast and Fire come up, the Earth Mover guys going Cold as Life was doing stuff differently. That whole time shift. So we, when I was getting more active, would be able to bring out of town bands in. There wasn't as much from Detroit, with the exception of Walls of Jericho, who were torn a lot that we could really help out.
0: Fuck yeah, <clears throat> yeah man, I love Cold Is Life. Still, still one of my favorite bands. It's a lot of people's favorite band. It seems like there's something with the whole uh, Detroit scene that you know, seems to resonate with how, like, you know, gritty and grimy it is. You know, along with the uh, Philly and New York, just seems a you know, the major cities seem to have their own sound too and you know the crowds and the fans of those bands just seem to stick out more than others crazy place well i feel like um
1: the 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 jeff era demos the there was a rawness that kind of crossed over the rip the way they played the riffs were definitely like a metallic approach to like a punk structure song and what i really loved about I really love the fact that Coda's life didn't depend upon like, people are like this is one of the hardest bands, but then you go with people who are like waiting for the mosh breakdown, it didn't really happen for them. You know, yeah. like Born to, Land, Born to Land Hard is still one of my favorite CDs because it's so gritty, the lyrics are so raw, and it and it's kind of like the bridge between the late 90s street culture, um, ideas on hardcore lyrics and still the old punk stuff from the 80s and it's just a very unique sound and then when declination came out they were trying a lot of different stuff and i and it was like uh we played a lot with them in fact coda's life or god forbid and diecast did like a, a run of shows that we were we were playing through the area and we had a show drop and they got us on it coda's life always looked out for punishment to the point where like i've stayed at jeff's house stayed at um mike's and his cousin's house like the thing that hardcore culture still had at that time was you didn't really, you didn't really play a show with a band and then not stay at their house. Like we played a house show in fucking Windsor, Canada, because we played a show in Yipsa Lenny with crazy ass um, Lenny. And like, we like party with those fucking maniacs them. And that's how we got to know the dudes from Windsor, that band face down yeah, Canada band. And there was always like a, you know, the scene was small. So you get to interact and know them guys and stay friends with them guys. And it's like, that's a part of hardcore that I think comes from relating to people. You know, like same thing, like when I, you know, I became boys with Dom, you know, and like Dom, he he was from Canada, but he had a big love for all that stuff. And so we had a lot to relate to. And I feel like sometimes now with the internet, you become people's friends because you follow them, but you don't know them. But if you play the show, anything in that time frame it wasn't like all right here's your money see you on the way nah man they came out to the show they hung out you'd go eat with them you'd stay at their house and be like hey come stay at my house like um we all we that's exactly what would happen um the first and second time just warrior would come and stay we stayed with people in um life or their friends or family and then same thing happened with punishment even up until 2002 when uh punishment and powerhouse came through But the shows were out in Ypsilini Instead of in being in Detroit There was always a connection between the people In the bands from the scene And the bands that were coming through And um, I like that You know like whatever Cold as life, whatever hoods came around Every single member of that band Was wearing cold as life gear I remember when we saw them in 98 We're like where did you get that hoodie Like dude this is the best hoodie I've always You know and then we're like We went down that same year And we're like we have to get them hoodies They're so fucking nice You know like There was something special about Cold's life in the fact that that was a grown band. And uh, I don't know if if you talked to them on your podcast yet, but there was this interesting moment where punishment was coming through. We were supposed to play in Windsor, but there was the WTO riot. And we couldn't get across the bridge. Mm. So Mike and big dog and them were like, you're going to play in our spot for our boys. And we're like, okay, yeah, it sounds cool. And we literally showed up in this, I don't know what the neighborhood was, but they had, like, a gang headquarters slash, like, band headquarters. And one of the coolest things i ever seen was that Coldest Life had a map with pins in it where they played. Like, a, it was, like, That's cool. for us, we were all, like, you know, not just, you know, we're friends with them, but we're also still, like, enamored by it. So we're like, holy shit, they're mapping out. <laughs> you know, like, and they... They they still were very involved with printing their own merch, mailing their own merch. Like they didn't let the other people handle it. And they had that chick Ramona who would later go on to book a lot of shows. She was working for Cold Life at that time. And they just I, I just thought of like Cold Life as like the most DIY thing possible because they had this like building where they had their band practice, they had all their merch organized, they had a fucking map. And yet they were like literally serious. Okay, like, hey man. Oh, you don't have a show? Cool. Come play in front of our friends. So we show up. They're like, no, nah, don't worry about gear. You guys can use our shit. And we played on cold as life shit in front of their friends. And it's one of the more intimidating things. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> a- I think I was 21. I think I, some of the guys were like 19, 18 and are like, all right, this is a little extra. And then we hung out at their house and shit and it was great. But like, Instead of saying, like, oh, Kota's life is like these crazy people, that's how much they kind of gave a fuck. Like, no, you're still going to have a show. Like, you come play for us. Like, they didn't want us to be without a show that night. And then, like, you stay at their house, and the next thing you know, they're either cooking breakfast, or we're all going to go to this diner together. And there's a camaraderie that came from that. And I think it's because even though we were years younger than those guys, they related back to that we were doing the same thing they were. So we always had a really good connection with the Detroit guys. And um, still, I mean... Even like years later, we would do shows at Shadow Realm. Them guys would still be out hanging out at shows. You know, it's always it's it's always been it's always been cool to be able to go to some town where you like the band that everyone knows and you're cool with that band. But it was actually even more special because Cold as Life weren't just like weird char- characters that people dream up because they see the 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 big pictures with all the pit bulls. They were legitimate hardcore fans and they were legitimate humans. And that even went further when Jeff would be on tour with Ramallah and you get to hang out and drink coffee and hang out with them every day and just, like, realize, like, how much of a real-ass human these people were, which kind of gets lost in today's hardcore internet world where they just, like, kind of characterize bands by, like, the imagery on their um, CDs. And it's like, nah, man, like, Jeff and them dudes knew so much about hardcore punk, you know? And there was so much... Was so, and, you know, actually, it's interesting... I started booking Negative Approach like almost 9-10 years ago and they came back and those guys are some of the realest motherfuckers as well like Harold um, everyone like you know they're just the most cool easy breeze guys like hey you want to play an after show yeah hell yeah man We'll play. you know like them guys are, are just a great example of like hardcore at its very roots still existing in the present and I don't have to tell you how like John's the most easy dude to deal with like physically ever the most, like, it's awesome Actually, yeah. you said casualties I did casualties And I did casualties and negative approach At this venue that just is about to close And it was one of the first shows we did there And he was pissed off about the PA And he looked at me, he's like, this fucking PA's broke I'm like, dude, you were playing shows in the 80s he's like, He looked at me, he's like, fuck yeah, man And like, literally <laughs> didn't give a fuck And he's like, alright, didn't give a fuck Kicked the monitor off the stage And just kept
0: going that's so good yeah sounds like them yeah there's a lot of fucking small places they've played over the past 10 years since they've been together like they did a free show back in like 2019 with uh razzle dazzle and fucking cold world it was a, it was a, a surprise show it was free they had free pizza free everything and then the a surprise band was um uh negative approach so you got to see a, neg- or a never ending game uh negative approach cold world and razzle dazzle all for free like What's better yeah, that than was that? uh that was
1: vice people hooking up with cold world and uh just so was, like okay yes because they did a philly thing here i didn't i didn't do the show but it was very similar and i mean cold cold world not playing so much it's very cool when they're able to play yeah so and i saw that flyer and was like that is like the greatest of you know i'm always a fan of continuity so like i know it's, it out with sound weird like razzle dazzle i wish they would have put a a Lenny's band or someone from you know earth mover just to tie them all in but i feel like yeah that that working class stuff that's in detroit is is present in boston it's present in philly it's present in a lot of places and it's why our bands are more chill about things you know like more down to earth about it so it's badass to to see that it still exists and that john would be like fuck yeah we'll play cuz that's how yeah. they would they don't
0: them, them guys are great to deal with yeah it's always exciting, <clears throat> but sorry the first time I've ever seen any of your bands like I think uh I think punishment was already already done by like two thousand and five, right? Like, you're already doing the shadow yeah,
1: I gotta made a cho- I had to make a choice in two thousand and four uh, ironically, um I was going to have my second child and decided to go on tour of punishment one more time and make a go of it because. and that was actually blacklist's first u s tour. So we took a grip of our friends beyond just the normal amount of people we take on a tour between the two vans. And that was like supposed to be like, all right, guys, it's gonna be my last tour. I gotta grow up. You know, I'm only 23, turning 24. <laughs> and uh I got a phone call from Shadow Realm. Hey, uh, we had this tour set up and uh, we don't have a singer. And I turned them down the fall before that, like punishment shadow realm, punishment had tour with ringworm. Punishment shadow realm actually you're fucked up. We, were, um, we played a lot of our shows together. 2002, our van fell apart and our band fell apart. We canceled the Punishment Shattered Realm Tour, which is our first U.S. tour. In 2003, Shattered Realm canceled doing the Punishment Ringworm Tour we were all going to do together. And I got home from that tour, and I thought Punishment was dead. Our van caught on fire. We had to get someone to drive out and pick us up and take us home. And dudes flew home. It was a miserable way to end, and I got a call. Hey, do you want to join Shadow Realm? We're going to Europe, and I'm like, I'm not doing anything. I'm going back to work. I'm kicking ass. I'm fucking happy. And then that was September in June. I got a phone call as the tour starting. Dude, we need somebody. He's not doing this tour, and I was kind of already on a fuck it mode. Like, well, fuck it, I don't care. All right, yeah, I'll do the tour. And that, so I started touring with Shadow Realm in 2004, and I, I basically did a couple shows as Punishment and Shadow Realm, like doubled up, and the drummer that we took on the tour, join blacklist And then that's when we're like, you know what, let's not do punishment for a while.
0: Yeah. fucking. Well, as I was say, the first time I've ever seen Shattered Realm, I think it was April of 2005 with, uh, I believe it was Death Before Dishonor and Ramallah, maybe yeah, Suffocate Faster. That was a, f- that was a um, tour. That was a great tour. Yeah that's fun. scary shit because I had a I had heard about you, you know, you hear about oh Joe Hardcore, you know, the FSU shit. So I was like, I'm finally gonna fucking see this band, you know, with a death before dishonor. And I knew who a white trash Rob was, you know, with a Ramallah. I knew he was in Bluff for Blood before that. And I just remember like, you know because I was still 17 at the time and like, you know, I think that was one of the first shows that they actually searched the people coming in. For some reason, some of them they never searched anybody. But when you guys played, they decided to search everybody that night. and I just remember uh like that was really one of the first like most violent shows I've ever been to. Just you know, the crowd, everyone acting fucking crazy and and you know those bands can really get everybody riled up. and it's the first time I've ever seen like 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 crowd killing for the most part. like people just getting fucking dropped and 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 fights afterward and like during it, and I was like, holy shit this is this is really something else, man. That tour that that kind of followed a lot of the shows that we did on that tour was
1: pat downs, people really crewed up, a lot of uh tense moments, but everybody in those bands, you know, uh suffocate faster from uh Cincy. Um, those guys are carriage crew, and then the rest of us were all in FSU at the time. Um, everybody had such a good time on the tour, you know, like I've been best like really. Brian Deppworth's honor is like one of my best friends He's one of my closest friends Been friends with him since so I started doing at tours Like we talked about earlier So, And then the fact that we got the tour with Ramallah Which meant hanging out with Rob And Ramallah was uh, Mike from Toledo Who has been in a shit ton of bands like Premonitions of War It was Timmy who played drums in His Life And um, Obviously Jeff on guitar like we were just excited to be around It was like a, a great tour to be around All of our friends So we were having the time of our lives Every moment of the show After and before And then our sets were fun But tense because Shit was popping off in the crowd At Sometimes it'd be us Sometimes it'd be doing Death Before Dishonor Sometimes Suffocate Sometimes uh, with Ramallah. Like you never know what crowd Was going to be the one that popped shit off
0: yeah and to be honest that's what really really what it's like i dived in you know, head first into hardcore just the fucking chaos you know to be honest that's what i love the most you know the fights like getting in fights just having a good time you know like getting hit in the head by someone you didn't know you know really made you feel alive at a young age like this is fucking great and it's, you know some people disagree with the violence and you know the aggressive male shit but that's you know, a lot of people are drawn to it and I was one of those people you know
1: now, there's a lot of things that can be said where to modern parlance is to attack toxic masculinity but there is there's two sides of that coin the first side is that a lot of the people that found hardcore had a lot of pent up aggression and rage and there's way more of a positive outlet in what I look at is like, hey man, this is mutual, this is a mutual understanding. When you go into a show, like when we talk about the like you know the styles of moshing and stuff earlier, there is a there's a cadence to how shows work. And occasionally people get upset and there's gonna be fights and that's part of the situation that we've all accepted at a certain time. And and, and to attack it as you know stupid is just trying to like, I don't know armchair quarterback or just put, put shame on something that you don't agree with. I've always found that some of the people that found shows at that age needed it. The same way I think that's people who find straight edge at a certain age, they need it. And you know, for us the issues wasn't was the pit problems. It was like first the skinhead violence, then you know us versus the Nazis out here, later the crew shit. That escalated violence in a direction that it probably was beyond what the capabilities of hardcore to contain it was. But as you go back all the way to the very, very beginning and something that I've been doing more often, there's always been violence. There's always been violent dancers. There's always been people known in the pit with crazy names for moshing. And so it's just a part of culture that we are having unhinged people with fucked up backgrounds or uh, let's use the modern term neurodivergent brains and right. now we are in a atmosphere where all of our miscreant crazy brains are accepted and we get to go off and that release keeps us from having more problems elsewhere so i've always supported it until there became like this um small i call it like the the the, the baby pool crew shit where it was like the smaller crew young kids were targeting people that weren't really like we fought we fought grown men. We fought bouncers. We fought skinheads. You know, I don't really like to believe that we ever really punched down. And when it started happening in Philly with our younger guys, it was kind of like, hey, come on. You know, like, yeah. you don't want to be the problem. Like, don't punch down. You want to punch up. You know, yeah. and, and, and I counter that with I don't think that the never-ending game world of today would be able to exist in the same insane, supportive, a million kids coming and shows getting bigger and hardcore bands be able to get to do more. If the violence was at the level it was then, because the kind of people that find themselves supporting and loving hardcore now never been punched in the face. Don't want to get punched in the face. Don't really take kindly to getting hit at all. And to the point where if you go to a show, you see kids in climbing to every spot ever to not get hit. And it's kind of, that's the, that's the unfortunate consequence of the moshing getting harder is less people being up in the front, less people being in the pit because everybody's swinging very fucking hard. Some of these kids are moshing harder than ever. I think also because there is not a lot of crew shit and consequences. So they're putting violence on people with no consequence. So there is some, there is some bad to it, but it's an interesting dichotomy between the, of support and like love of this violent moshing that kids have now And not actual true violence of actual fights Whereas yeah. in our world it was hit and be hit Who cares if you got in the fight You could kind of rub it off Now anything that happened goes directly on the internet And maybe the internet is possibly a symptom of why things changed But yeah, it was a crazy time And that show specifically had a great energy Because that room was long and skinny so there wasn't a lot of places for people to hide so there wasn't really a lot of places where someone could stand comfortably and it was also a juxtaposition of a lot of older people there for some of the bands you know they could see what crowds you know the younger kids in sweatpants and you know my shorts were there for the suffocate fasters you know Dead Before his honor and shadow realm had you know a similar crowd the balance of it was pretty cool for that show
0: yeah yeah <laughs> which it takes us towards you know if you guys came through twice that year i don't know who the second tour was with Oh, the second tour uh, was the donny brook yeah donny brook hoods shattered realm and black my heart the uh yeah. street street brutality tour yeah that was which, nice. uh, that fucking show um which we were just talking about like the crew shit and um uh, punching down that's one of the times where you know, i really got checked because me and my friends used to be like real assholes to people you know, honestly, punching down, like, you know, sort of like the, what I would say, like, yeah, Cobra Kai attitude, you know, all of us, we're the tough guys, we'll fuck you up in numbers type of thing, which now I, you know, I look back, it's, it's completely ridiculous and, and rude to be that bully. But it's uh, one of the times something happened with this kid and, you know, it led to fists outside during that show. I don't know what band was playing, you guys were already over. But so this kid got fucking beat up and, all because it's my friend—I'm not going to say his name, obviously—he said he had said something about his girlfriend, which isn't a reason to fight. I was like, you guys were fighting for the right reason, like Nazis and, and and crazy people. But I got checked after this kid got beat up by like one of the older dudes. He fucking grabbed me from like the back of my shirt. Like, what the fuck are you doing? I was like, he's talking shit. He's like, so so fucking what? What are he's talking shit? I don't know. I'm sorry. I you know, while this kid's laying in the street, he got beat up for no fucking reason. Come to find out it was the wrong kid. He, he didn't deserve to get beat up. Like we just followed him out to his car, you know, for just some stupid shit. And that's one of the times I feel the worst about, but you know, it happens, I guess. But if it was my son today, everybody would be dead. You know?
1: I find that when we were younger, we were unhinged and there's a, support network that isn't always sane because it's like oh well this is my friend so he can't be wrong and that's a contrast to when we were growing up the guys that i came up under were very crazy people a lot of old skinhead dudes punk rock guys um dudes that are in the band bad luck 13 and guys that hung out with bad luck 13 and some of these guys are just punk rockers that were just crazy other these guys were like actual street gang dudes whose outlet was hardcore or grew up in like legitimate skinhead bands and grew up in the legit crazy shit because of the area that we're from and the kind of violence that was already accepted because between hardcore people and skinheads so there was a interesting learning curve what we could do what we shouldn't do juxtaposed against a hardcore scene that was very much like close to being more of like what the modern hardcore scene would be a lot of straight edge people, a lot of vegan people. Um, a lot of the more popular stuff was getting big here. And we were following the more goon shit that was like outside of Philadelphia. Let's like punishment, legitimately punishment actually it was freight train, but I think Freight train was a band from our friends, our buddies frontline and then punishment were like the heavy bands or our friends Kensington, but they were not as heavy as punishment, not like trip as goony as we were. We're kind of the first like goon thing. And that didn't happen until 2000. So for years, there was a balance between you're allowed to punch these people. You're not allowed to punch these people. And there was always a smack in the head or what the fuck is your problem from the old people? Like, come on, man. Yeah. Kind of like, like, fuck, I can do it here. but I can't do like, there was a, there, it was, it was actually sometimes easier to be the younger guy and not have to make calls and decisions. And then as shit grew in the early 2000s, there was a window where if you're with your friends, you're, whatever your friend's doing is right because that's your friend. And that had to come to an end. And you could look back in hindsight and go, well, yeah, I mean, but that's a ball that rolls out of control. But every ball comes to a stop at some point, you know, not for everybody, but for individuals. And it's one of the best things that happened here was that we started really reeling in people that we were friends with that were taking advantage of being like, well, I'm with this core group so I can get away with this. We try to pull that. You can get away with this behavior out because we saw it kind of getting misused. Yeah. And so there's definitely people that have gotten beat up that shouldn't have. There was definitely violence that gone past the point where now in hindsight, me being 40, not in my mid twenties, I would have said, yeah, this makes total sense. We're not like, does this make sense? Like, what are you, like, what are you saving? But you have to, It. it's also important to understand that what hardcore shift happens in the scene also happens with regular people in regular life. People in general, you know, I was great. I was kind of raised where if you had a problem with somebody and this isn't like when I was 12 and 13, I'm talking like eight, nine, 10, you would go out and fight your next door neighbor. You know, like the parents were like, "Yeah, these two kids are talking shit about each other. Might as well have them fight and get it over with." So you have that you were we were raised to hit back if we were hit. You were raised at not punching someone if they hit you. You weren't like there was no teacher's conference for a fight. You know, like there was none of that. Right. So we were we were indoctrinated into mutual combat. We were indoctrinated to hit them harder than they hit you. Yeah. That that kind of concepts swing first. Yeah, and that and that concept is not really prevalent in today's hardcore scene by the people that how they're how they were raised, how their parents raised them, and that's why you don't see that same kind of stuff exist now.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the kind of shit that I went through, where I ended up being a, like an asshole, you know, to some people. Um, you know, like it's like going to high school, and like middle school and high school and shit. Um, you know, I was never like a cool guy, so you know, there's like certain like jocks and other people who would, like fuck with me. And, because the way I look or whatever, and I never really stood up for myself, you know, until I actually started going to, like, punk and hardcore shows and realized there was, like, friends that, like, had my back. And then I would still end up going to high school where, like, the same people would, would like, want to talk shit or whatever, but they would just get checked, you know? Like, I'd finally step up to them, like, what do you want to do? You know, when I would just normally walk away or, you know, and just let them talk their shit. But then after going to hardcore shows and, and meeting certain people that would tell you, and go hit this fucking guy. I got your back to where it just became like a free for all. And then, so there's people who, you know, who I would eventually basically, you know, get, get a revenge in a sense on, because I knew that I could, I could handle my own. It's some sort of um, weird confidence, but eventually that spiraled out of control from being bullied to becoming, you know, a bully in a sense, which is a lot of people that would agree, but I'm a different man now, you know?
1: Well, I, It's, we all have to grow and you have to make mistakes to grow. And, you know, if you want to, you can sit back and look at everything you did bad and worry about it. And I think that what you said is a, is a major trope of what gets people in the hardcore is no one feels accepted in the regular world for the most part. So this side parallel universe of hardcore allows us to feel like we have our own police, um, And dude, there's there's people that I'm friends with that might have been the hardest mosher at a show, softest shit in real life. There's people that early on that were like in some of the crew shit, at shows, real shit pops off. They're not there for it. There are certain people that go to hardcore show for release. There's certain show to go. There's a certain people that go to shows that is more of like. Like a religious experience I know that may sound A little silly but culturally Hardcore shows is very much In in part of like what a Religion would do and me and Rich, Richie Put me onto this and I really absorbed It into how I look at it because it makes total sense And so Our culture has some of that and I think that Over time the Stuff the bad elements and the bad things Have really been whittled out And good people like Yourself um, and You know, I can't call myself a good person, but I can say that I learned a lot about what to do right by how many times I've done wrong and not repeating those wrongs and moving forward and try to educate to people that you can not have to do these things and still be cool has kind of given me a chance to feel better about the dumb shit that we did. And so I don't feel like hardcore, hardcore is a weird place. There are times when it's absolutely necessary and it doesn't happen. There's times where it's absolutely not necessary and happens and you really can't do too much about it, but go sh- roll, shrug your head and go, uh, eh, is what it is. And we, we will learn from it. And I have so many friends who have changed their lives through hardcore. and So many people that have changed their lives and moved on. They don't go to shows, but they still have such a beautiful, like love and respect for their time in hardcore that I feel that specifically we can't sit here and go back and forth and worry oh well there was this time because there's been a thousand times and you never Mm -hmm. know with the exception of when someone has extremely bad violence like life-changing situations like you know people have been stabbed and beaten very badly which is such a small 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 percentage like it wouldn't even make up one percent you know that's the other thing is like there is this moment in hardcore where people are like oh that was such a violent era but it's like Yeah, I got my shit popped out. I got my fucking eye smashed in. Mm -hmm. That was par for the course. Very, very, very few times have people gotten like life-threatening injuries. And, you know, we're also the culture that kind of laughs when someone kicks you in your mouth from a stage dive. And, you know, I've watched this hardcore over the last 16 years where younger kids that you wouldn't even think could take it, like these small, like, you know, little girls – and I see them, their whole fucking eyes black. I'm like, all right, they're like, oh, I'm so excited to still be here. And I'm like, what? You're at the like the yeah. So we, we, we also need to understand that this, this culture, even without the violence, there's some crazy shit that happens. You know, we ought to tell people who broke their wrist and broke their elbow, hey, you can't stage dive tonight. Especially the earlier venue, it was so much harder. And you had these kids with these fucking looks like Vietnam or World War II bandages on their heads still trying to sing along. And you're like, Jesus Christ. So I guess the best way to say it Is that violence is Violence and injuries are two separate things But the people are pretty resilient And there's a lot that hardcore has grown from And I think we needed that growing pains Of what that shit was And as long as you're not As long as you're not masturbating to those times Where like yeah remember that time I did that Right. you're a sane human and you have grown from it yeah. And the people that haven't had growth from it Their, their regular life Is fucking fucked up and unfortunately almost everybody i know be it the 90s 2000s 2010s have all grown because that's another thing is that life and hardcore has given us growth
0: yeah for sure i agree and you know it goes it's part of growing is um you know i had a friend this was probably like 2008 2009 um who was was straight edge as long as i knew him and uh his name was uh, Danny Albright, um, you know, just just a hardcore kid. He was a straight edge for a long time. Uh, his mom and brother had both have overdosed, you know, before he was like 16 years old. And um, he, what do you say, like broke edge in like 2007, uh, like late so late 2007. And by fucking by April of 2008, man, he was so fucking like into drinking and doing drugs that he had overdosed on when the, what's that um uh, suboxin pills and and from him overdosing like it had a big effect on me and i sort of i started spiraling a little bit you know i started drinking more acting crazier but i stopped going to shows because like i don't know because he was always there we rode in the same car together and he had a big impact we were really good friends um so when he died it really like, I felt like I couldn't go to shows without him being there. So I stopped going for a while, you know, Um but I eventually started to realize, you know, his spiral so fast, but I was at a slower pace, but still spiraling. You know, I'm not straight edge, but I really, I really slowed down because I'd met my wife and, and she had a kid already. And, you know, it was to make a choice, either chill out with the drugs and shit like that, or, you know, we can play, play this role. And what I'm trying to say is it was hard for me to stay in hardcore and take on the fatherly role and balance at the same time. But because of my friend dying, it, you know, I grew as a person and kind of chilled out, you know, and I know you the same way. One of your, one of your uh, buddies, I don't know what happened to him, but that caused you to uh, start being straight edge, right? Recording who gives a shit. I'll say, well, we fucked up. Well, so what? So when my friend Danny Albright, who, He had overdosed on uh, suboxone pills, I believe, or something along those lines, you know, the heroin, you know, uh, replacement drug. But that was a point in my life was one of my first, uh, good friends, you know, it's one of many now that have, uh, overdosed or, you know, either killed themselves or whatever. And, um, when he died, it kinda started, started drinking a lot more. I was never into pills, but like cocaine and shit. And, uh, you know, I was with my wife already at the time, but she had a five-month-old when I met her. Um, you know, not my bi- biological son, but it came to a point where you know, she put me, you know, in a situation. It's either us or, you know, the drugs and alcohol and shit. And, you know, at that point, I had I'd made the choice, you know, to you know relax on everything because, you know, I love my wife and I love the kid and all that shit. So um, that's what I'm trying to say is it was hard for me to balance like shows and the at home, like dad life and stuff. Cause it was almost where point I couldn't trust myself, you know, with whatever, if I was going to go to a show, I was going to get fucked up, you know? So it was almost like, I'd like stay in this cage for a while uh It's like a rehab, like a quarantine of my own, you know, just, I couldn't trust myself. I'm going to drink. I'm going to drink a lot. I'm going to find drugs. I'm going to fight somebody. So there's a point where, I didn't go to shows, but I started to realize that I missed it so much, started coming back. And I don't even know where I'm going with this. I'm just telling you, you know, it's hard to balance for a while. I mean, I heard you talk about the whole, um, uh, it's like a Peter Pan thing with uh, one of your other uh, podcasts you did and how you can forget, you know, once you see it again, it's sort of like the lost boys are still there waiting for you to come back.
1: Well, I think that, A lot of what people run into is Exactly what you kind of alliterated And I have friends On each side of the equation Friends who fucked up their lives with Substances And Basically abandoned The regimen of going to shows And doing the things Because those kind of substances took over their lives Subsequently Also having friends who said Well I've got this girl and we've got this Baby and I've got this job and Shows are just cool, but not as cool as this stuff. And God bless them. And I I find that at times I have to question, not often, but I do question, you know, um, this has been my life. And uh, it's not my financial stability by any stretch. I got lucky that I through someone I knew in hardcore. I got a chance to get a union construction job. I worked residential, non-union, for myself, for others, pretty much since I'm like 97 until 2005. So once I had the opportunity to join a union, I had to decide what was really touring about. And it wasn't hard to figure out post the shooting outside of the Tucson. And then just come into the realization that touring is great, but I I don't want to be a guy whose entire life is touring. Um, I'm not meant to be on the road more than like, Couple days at a time, I think. And I, now that I'm now that that's been 15 years ago, I don't want to be a person who doesn't have the ins and outs of a routine. Now, granted, when we toured in Europe, it's such a machine and the routine exists that that's something I could like live with. But, um, there isn't times where I don't wax nostalgically on just, oh, we could go out on the road and have fun for a week. But real life catches up to you one way or another is essentially what I'm getting at. And real life is the responsibilities or paying the penalties for not taking the right pass. That being said, hardcore is always going to be here in some form or another. And so when you're either your feet are back in motion or you're just waxing nostalgically and you have it already together, that's the beauty thing of it. And um, it's not like something that you have to pay to log into, especially now in the age of hate eight, five, six and all the digital media that exists You can have a pretty normal life and still be cognizant and to some degree, a supporter of hardcore and not put your feet in the door threshold of an actual hardcore show. So there's a balance, but for others, you know, like, um, I get, I get up in early in the morning, I get my, my things together to go to work. I put podcasts on while I'm at work most of And I don't really talk about hardcore music, hardcore punk with any of my coworkers, I do have the nickname hardcore on a lot of jobs, usually because guys start looking into my social media, you know, and uh, the company I worked with the longest, I, they're, they're like, uh, oh yeah, hardcore. That's how they refer to me. Oh, that's Joe. You know, like it, it, it subsequently follows me, but not by my own intention. I don't sit there and go, Oh, just let you know. I'm Joe hardcore. No, that doesn't <laughs> exist. In fact, yeah. I have, I, there's a lot of my own life that I don't discuss in the lunch break when we have shared lunch. And there's a lot of stuff that's just me and hardcore punk is one of those things. That's just mine. And, it, and it's something that stays with me, but I, I feel that there are people within hardcore who never find a balance in the other regard. And it's such all of their lives that they might wake up on the wrong side of whether it's 30, 40, 50 and be like, fuck, I don't have anything else together for myself. You got to find a balance And some of that balance is going all in on a business, which is where I got the podcast ideas from to talk to people that can manage to be in a punk rock, punk rock life while, you know, still being a business person. And that's not everybody I speak with, but there's a fascination finding skills and opportunities and all these things that come from hardcore that are now the basis for how you survive, which is a very punk rock thing in itself. So you are like many people I know that had um, deficiencies in control and you had to get your life together. But here you are. Your life's together. You're back in the game. And that's the other part of it. It's just like starting off. Like they, I, I read a lot of self-help stuff because I don't have always the best track record for staying on point with things. And the one thing I always like to say, which is something I'm repeating, it's not my own, is that every day is the opportunity to start or to start again. You did something five days. You scopped it on six, seven. Well, then day eight, do it again. You know, you can get back into it. And hardcore is the same way. I have friends who are in their 40s checking out bands that are brand new. I have friends who are in their 50s that are checking out bands that are brand new. You know, like there's always going to be a relationship to the scene and a culture. And it also was in part because the culture of what's now still has a relationship to the past. You see it a lot in the revelation stuff that's still getting re-released. And now in the world of podcasting, there's all these old times from people are going back, and you know there's a lot of different ways that we could still interact with hardcore, and still maintain the forty-hour job
0: and the good family. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's kind of it's kind of funny how I um got like I reinvigorated like you know i always watched the hate five six um you know shit on youtube and all and i always i always checked out the new releases you know bought the merch but i i really wasn't showing up at shows but until it was, it was a holiday i don't know what holiday it was maybe like three or four four years ago um i just it was just a uh, youtube was on my tv and it was the when uh when when, when Blood for Blood did uh, this is hardcore. I think about 2017. Oh, yeah. and, like, my whole family was over, and I was just sitting in there like watching it quietly while people were like, eating dinner. And my brother-in-law was sitting there with me, and you know, so so he just started asking questions like like this place is fucking crazy. And, like somebody got punched like in the pit, and he just thought like like what kind of shit is this? Like he had no idea that it was the shit that I used to go to, or you know, still did you know here and there. But I started like explaining it to him, and then. I ended up taking him to a show, um, which was uh, a Terror, Backtrack, and Harm's Way at uh, the Sanctuary in Detroit, just because he thought the videos were, uh, you know, fascinating in the crowd and people, you know, stage diving and shit like that. He's 28 years old, you know. So for him to uh, discover that at at such an older age, in my opinion, you know, 28 years old, when you find out when you're a teenager, um, see, it was able to, like, bring me back to like how exciting it was for me and like actually what i had missed out on the past you know few years and so he started getting into the shit so i showed him what was up and now he's all in man it's it's just good to do for somebody like hey this is what i do so so now somebody else gets to do it at 30 years old now especially with the internet the
1: interaction times have shifted greatly and it i'm i'm in a short list of people that were going to shows before they were old enough to drive You know, consistently, and I got lucky because of the transit system and the people around me like we talked about, but I find that more and more often it's people who were introduced the way you're speaking on or they have the internet or 856 or Spotify and all these internet algorithms that put you down this wormhole. And and I've done this with other things that I'm now into in the opposite regard. You know, like I found things through YouTube and I'm like, oh my God, I got to do this. This is so cool. So I can relate to people who are finding things in the now. And I find that the best way to stay excited about this music is to not be around people, your own age, all of the time, as you get older. And I have friends that are literally one of my best friends is hard Carl, who put out the turning point records and fucking, you know, was the guy who brought tattooing back to DC and has all these great stories from the 1980s. But, you know, um, bob and bob wilson and us all hanging out together carl is now super excited about some of these younger bands just because he's like oh man this is cool that this is back and the youth then reinvigorates us because everything is new to them so then you're excited for them you know and i find that the best way to stay excited about hardcore is to not feel like you know everything you know and to be excited just for the simple things that come back or support people when you yourself aren't really, you know, I, I, I put on shows sometimes because I want to see young bands and see if like, am I crazy? Is this band good? And uh, a great example is that wild side band. Bob put them at, showed them to us. And we didn't go to, I didn't go to jitsu that night, which is something I never do just to see them. And, it, and it's like, you get excited about new things. And ironically in hardcore, it's like new things that sound like the old things that you love. And so there's a cycle that will always continue, which is where the Peter Pan thing continues for some and where people can step in and out of it as they need a lot easier. The internet's made it a thousand times easier to be interactive and stay cognizant of who's what and what's going on without ever having to touch a show, which has its benefits and its detracting
0: points. But I think ultimately the benefits outweigh, you know? For sure, man. Yeah, that's a good thing that you said it doesn't matter what age you know you can see it on on youtube or you can uh, continue supporting bands by like buying their merch or you know the $3 bandcamp stream you know whatever else at all you know it all affects the bands either way and it's good to have your hand in it still
1: well, like um
0: hardcore bandcamp is not unlike the soundcloud
1: in the in the regards of how people find music and how bands are spread and so for me specifically i find myself Constantly on Bandcamp when a band's mentioned on the internet, with Twitter moves so fast, Instagram being able to check out new bands weekly is kind of sometimes over. I won't say it's exhausting, but it's oversaturation. Like I can't catch up on everything, but in the same time, it just shows you the level of how quick everything's moving because of the internet, because of the involvement, because of the engagement that's coming from these algorithms. You know, it's like. Have Heart was a decent sized band when they broke up And not something to be like "Oh, They weren't even known But it was bridge Nine's Back catalog With the algorithm that it had That would get all these newer fans That are not like hardcore people So when they end up playing a 10,000 person For a show back it's like yeah because All of Have Heart's fans I'd say less than 800 of the people That were at the 10,000 were like legit died in the paint hardcore people because they got exposed to an entire generation the minute that Spotify and YouTube began suggesting algorithms that would put them in that path. So it's it's AI, internet, has all kind of given a second and third wave to some of this. And then also there's a lot of organic stuff. You know, um, my friend Ryan re-released Turning Point. So I said, hey, it's a good time for you guys to play. It took a lot of me twisting arms to get them to do it that show that they did 40 years ago, which going on five, boom, entire resurgence of people loving Turning Point. And then now there's bands like One Step Closer, which directly are influenced by Turning Point. And now Turning Point's release is finally going to get released, re-released on Revelation. And this happens all the time, you know, the modern day of veganism and young kids being into the heavier stuff. Earth Crisis, we actually put them on a fest in a spot that I was like a no-lose for them. Like if people, we booked them, In 2012 And they had a decent set But it wasn't like the chaos that we were hoping for So we put them in a decent spot In a 2016 Or 2017 set And that was one of the best sets I've ever seen At This Hardcore Because of the younger kids That have been growing into Who they are And are super into metalcore and veganism And all this heavy stuff And it was just by luck Earth Crisis had this set That made them so happy so one of the things that I love about this is through doing shows and doing the things that I do, I get young kids excited about old bands and I get old bands reinvigorated by these young kids that want to support them, be it maximum penalty. We did, I cannot believe that we did alone in the crowd and we played one show ever. And unfortunately because of Howie and his brain tumor situation and needing to have surgery, we were able to do alone in the crowd. And there's a ton of bands now that kids are into, I think partially because of what was talked about around the time of those shows, you know? So the exposure of the new stuff to the old people and likewise, the old stuff to new people is a huge reason why hardcore is not going to die in this internet age.
0: Yeah. I love it. And, you know, every year, you know, since, since 2006 I've seen, uh, you know, the, uh, this is hardcore fast. And every year I just want to kick myself in the ass. I say, yeah, I'm going to go see all these bands, whether it's a reunion or not. And I never make it out, man. But uh, just this past year, 2020, I had an Airbnb booked and a car booked in like fucking February. I was coming. You know, I had everything planned. I was like, I'm fucking going finally. I didn't know what bands were playing or nothing. And then the whole shit just shut down. The one year. I was like, motherfucker.
1: I find that if I wasn't me, I probably wouldn't. I probably would have been at two or three This Is Hardcore as ever. If I didn't live in Philadelphia, right? (laughs) That's it's harder. It's harder to do those things. You know, um, it's, it's very fucked up to be the person that puts on something like this. And yet, you know, like, again, I pour concrete for a living. I got other things that I do in nature of it. And I, I feel bad that I don't support every other fest in the physical presence, but there's always so much time and money, especially when this hardcore is a four day show. Now, next 2021 2021 it'll probably be what we did last time which is like a show beforehand at a smaller venue and and three shows or whatever but it doesn't that that's a lot of my lifetime it sounds dumb but like i now have like an organized schedule like t minus 60 days out 30 days out a week out there's different things that got to be in place and then because i do this sword fighting shit i usually what, there was years where I would take like three weeks off It'd be like the fest I'd be off for it And then I would take two weeks off to do the sword fighting So now I do two, three days before the fest I'm off of work And then I go back to work for two or three days And then I take a week or so off To do sword fighting out in Pennsylvania And That's like a lot of my vacation It was only one year it was like three years ago Where I took another week of vacation And went to Maine with my wife And I've had more hardcore, this is hardcore related time off Than I've ever had a vacation in my real life You know, especially with touring being over um, The time is limited and the resources are still limited I'm not balling out here And so I I, I relate completely to what you're saying And that, you know, uh, it's fucked up We're about four or five days away from the last festival I was at Which was FYA Bob had been doing that for years and that's like you know that's my protege it's like my little brother it's the first time I actually got to go to it for the same thing so I relate I really heavily to what you're saying like it looks awesome love that you do it I have never been there
0: <laughs> yeah yeah. I thought for sure um, FYA was going to happen amid, amongst all the shit man you know I was he, like he I was bullying him and
1: bullying him and bullying and bullying and bullying and bullying him to do it and <laughs> Uh, he, like a lot of promoters, doesn't want the Twitter smoke of people like, how dare you put this on?
0: You're going to kill the
1: world. every person. And so he doesn't want to do it. And I, and I relate to that. I mean, there's a lot of investment. Well, you gotta, what people don't understand is what a show. You have to rent the venue. Sometimes in his position specifically, there's got to be a deposit that's made. There's a lot of business that has to be done in the promise that a show happens. And that the money is going to be there. So there's an uncertainty that comes from the next year or two of shows, and you're going to see some bands balk at wanting to do things without a promise of definite. This is what it's going to be. There's got to be back. We got to get back to the flow of things to know the trust. I'm under the belief that a show that would do like 1,200 persons might do 600 now.
0: I like don't know how today. Lo-
1: Yeah, just because you never know who's going to show up, even with the vaccine and all the the what ifs. I don't even like talking about the what ifs, but the what ifs are that things are uncertain and some people are going to still not be comfortable going. And it's going to take somebody getting the lumps in their face and online people like, this guy's a piece of shit. He's not and blah, blah, blah. I, I have friends who think the opposite. They're like, oh, my God, when everything comes, it's going to be so much better. No, there's a shit ton of bottlenecking. There's bands who haven't played in years. There's going to be so many bands playing on top of each other. It's kind of like uh, if you kept a bunch of ravenous wolves in a cage without food. All these bands that uh, like live off of touring are all going to want to and tour. And so on a promoter situation, there's a thousand bands that are all going to be coming at the same time. And I, I think it's going to be a feast or famine. You know, I don't think that it's going to be as good as it was solely because so many people are not going to work together to make sure they're not working on top of each other. And juxtapose that with though they were going to pass the bill, they haven't done it. That includes $15 billion, which is something we talked about on my podcast with Tim Moore. NEVA, which is National Blah 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 Venue Association, lobbied correctly with the government to get money for the small venues. There was $15 billion in the recent bill that would pass would help these venues, but there's already small venues lost, which directly affects hardcore. And you're gonna it's gonna see a lot of change. So I don't I don't really know. I was hoping that Bob was gonna be the first one to do FYA. Part of me still wanted to go to Tampa, Florida, and just party at the goth night for three days. And um, but in regards to it, I don't know, I don't know how it's gonna work when it comes out. The parameters aren't set, but I feel like there's going to be a level of stupidity and not working together to force all these shows to happen all at once. Like the minute that the minute this is all back, we have to get back out there. And I I don't think it's going to make shows bigger. I think it's going to make people fight for a space. And I think that there's going to be,
0: there needs to be a balance. Yeah. Yeah. That's what, my feeling. Sort of like um, uh, my prediction, I wanted to be positive and, you know, think, no, that um, all these bands are just exactly just going to go jump on tour and there's going to be uh, the three of your favorite bands and eat in your city every night. But that's where I was seeing, I was like, so do you want to go see agnostic front over here or if terror over there or, you know, whatever else at the next venue. But that also takes away from uh, the crowds and their support to earn the money that they deserve on tour. Um So I don't I just hope that it can all be figured out to where they're not on top of each other in the major cities, where they know they're gonna have a big crowd because it'll be a third of the crowd if there's three bands there the same night. You know, hopefully it could be some sort of coordination. You know, uh, the worst show that I've had recently
1: that was pretty ass, and it wasn't even in my ass. It's like should have been an insane, even more insane show. A lot of people went to see Black Sabbath the same day we did Maple. And that was kind of like, I'm overseeing shit like Black Sabbath. Unless it's you want to get me to see something crazy, it's got to be Iron Maiden. You know <laughs> yeah. that that's because Iron Maiden comes so so limited. But uh, one of the things that I do, which is not usually what promoters do, is I often tell booking agents when they start asking for holds, like, "Hey, by the way, this also is in the area. So when you're asking for." The way a show gets booked for those listening is that you get an email from certain agents who are asking for a stretch of dates. Very few times the band want a target date specific. They go, Hey, this is a stretch we're thinking about because you got to remember is they're booking 30 days. So they need a sliding window for each area because one, one venue in Baltimore may not be able to work on this day. So they want the flexibility before they iron out. And then unfortunately for the world of promoters and bands, because they have to fucking drive farther, some agents only go to the places where the money is bigger, and I've watched tours look so dumb because someone's gonna go from point A to point B to point C, which is almost like a fucking U, because the money's bigger than doing it linearly, where it would be easier for the band and drive time and gas and all that. So that being said, is I I often when I see tours coming too close together, I communicate it, and sometimes they work around it, and sometimes they don't. Um, I am not a I'm not a big promoter I do good hardcore shows but doing good hardcore shows is such a small thing and with the corporate world involved in music and owning venues more and more of our space is going to be limited to the bands that want to play a hardcore show and they're not looking for something else and I at my stage of where I'm at in my life and with the shows the bands that work with me work with me because I have a name that I've built over the last 23 years. I do my best. And sometimes I don't get the band. Sometimes they go to the rock club. Sometimes they play in front of the barricade. I used to get really upset by this. And then I learned, they eh, will come back. And they usually do. Then the bands that don't come back, they never wanted to be here in the first place. And I shouldn't keep bothering with them. And that's kind of where I'm at with things. And I'm lucky that I have a decent relationship with a great amount of bands that I love to work with that allows me to keep doing shows. But I imagine it, there's there's always a world where at some point, whether through regulation or just by sheer want and need, these hardcore bands could tomorrow just bail out on the whole thing and just try to be something else. But the good thing is for the ones that do that, there's a whole group of bands that are coming up. And that's when there's the older bands, which I love to deal with, don't want to work with me i realize oh wait now i have more time to focus on these bands which i need to bring up so that they can grow so there's a balance there
0: yeah just it's fucking a little bit depressing too you know i'm sorry i'm sure it's even worse for you you know booking the shows that that uh, took up a lot of your time i'm sure but so not even having any of that now like something to look forward to whether it's once a month or so once a month or three times a month you know booking shows wise it's just not there anymore. So do you just fill your time with uh, work and uh, jujitsu or? Yeah, I, um, I. what's
1: interesting is that I have friends who probably spent every single day of the COVID talking about the lack of shows and how they don't know what they're going to do with my li- their lives. And um, be it listening to Jocko Willink and other people. I just pivoted, man. Okay, cool. There's no shows or there's no shows coming through. Okay, I'm going to work on trying to make the fest happen, but I have all these other things I want to do. We were working all together on a house, which was for our friend. That was fun. Um, I went back into union work when we were able to. I worked consistently every single day I can. Um, Jiu-Jitsu was closed. It reopened on my birthday, which was, is July 4th. And we recently closed again a week and a half ago. But my body's sore. It's getting colder. So I look at this like, all right, a little time to get rest. I'm about to get my stomach tattoo finished. I find the things to fill my head So I'm not waxing for the moment That we have shows again Because yeah. they'll come And I don't think they're over And we pivot in a couple different directions We've got a digital, this hardcore thing That we've been working on But it seems like, as I said in another podcast There was a time when we couldn't get people To do the digital thing And so we were scrounging to get bands that we interested Now the opposite is true Now there's every band that said no Are now just doing their own Which is fucked up because we asked them But right. it is what it is So in early 2021, we'll be releasing some form of our digital thing. I am actively working on the potential of what this hardcore could be because the person who was huge in getting us the venue at the electric factory, he died the Monday before COVID even was known to the world. And it was really hard. It's like losing a, a friend and a mentor and a big brother and a guardian angel that he is the buffer between the corporate entity that runs the venue now and making sure that we have the support we need it. And he's the ultimate final say in the stuff that we get to do. So we have this argument at the venue. So I cannot see us in good faith going back to that venue because I don't think that we'll have the same stewardship and support that we need to be at that venue. So I've been since March, um, I was hoping a little bit that we could keep it going But then once everything closed um, By like April or May I realized there was going to be no Zarkor at the venue And I, I'm not actively looking to return To the electric factory And I look at it like I started this Zarkor in 2006 in one room That room is now a bunch of houses The electric factory was di- was still owned privately And now it's owned corporate Um, It's time to find a new room And move forward into the third phase Of what this
0: Zarkor is yeah, fuck. Yeah, no. I know. I saw all the Hate 5-6 videos there from all the. I'm like, I can't wait to go, go fucking go to that place, go crazy there. But, oh, well, it doesn't happen as long as I make it out eventually. You know, because I love, you know, every band, especially 2017, dude. Like, that was my favorite lineup I've ever seen. I don't know how, how you feel, but you had, like, uh, you know – Scarhead, Death Threat, Madball, Blood for Blood. Uh, well, Nirmala did that set, you know, Blood for Blood, uh, H2O, I think uh, Cold Is Life, you know, the other Cold Is Life with um, uh, Jesse singing, 100 Demons, all my favorite bands. <laughs> and and uh, I was going to ask you, so can you go ahead and spoil it and say any, any good bands that was going to be there in 2020 that were unable to play? I hear you. All right uh i'm waiting for my audio to come back great can you hear me now you're good
1: i'm in a weird spot that i can hear me talking but i don't hear me on my own stupid headset so i might just take that off as long as yeah. you know you're recording and you're good
0: yep you're good. Yeah, we're recording oh, yeah everything's yeah, good. yeah. <laughs> we're fine man yeah. don't worry we've, we've we've ran the tests
1: let me see all right i'm good i'm, I'm actually in everything now okay sweet I don't know why that's shifted and I'm not happy about that. I'll have to figure out where that went wrong. So uh, we will start with the question. So I had this old guy band that I was most excited for. And actually it's set up the year before I booked Keith's band off specifically because I thought that at some point circle jerks playing would be something that I would love to see. And I I manifested it is the best way to put it. So by manifesting it, we got Circle Jerks to do their first East Coast show because they were going to do a shit ton of shows in 2020. They obviously canceled all of them, so we weren't going to have Circle Jerks. So that was like the big excitement stuff. And then I had a bunch of shit that I was working on. And I'm going to be honest with you, I did something I've never done before. And the minute that, the minute that I knew we weren't going to have the fest, I completely deleted the file. And I also like out of my head, I, I got rid of any idea what I was really working at just because the frustration was so fucking high.
0: Oh, I couldn't imagine.
1: Um, You know, talking about 2017, there are so many of my own personal favorite bands. Um, and that was the year that I spoke on with Earth Crisis. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I am happy that I have the ability to do these lineups and that. Every year someone says what you said, this is all my favorite bands. And that's all I want to do. Cause I love all this stuff. And I, and I see the intrinsic value and correlation to how all this music locks in, you know? And so that same year that we did, you know, we did better life. We couldn't get robbed the performance blood for blood for there's all this weird bullshit legal stuff with the original singer. Mm-hmm. And so we got Ramallah and we just put a blood for blood skull and he did all the songs. And there was always hope that we could do a real blood for blood. And that was probably the closest I've come was in 2020 to maybe having a blood for blood set. And to the point when I was driving in Ohio, the, um, I broke my hand at FYA, came home, worked in concrete, found out I needed to have screws put in my hand Was out of work and had to like baby it for six weeks. And the week I was gonna the week I returned to work, I went to drive to Ohio with a friend. The drive out there was the last conversation with I'd have with my friend Brian, who would be the guy who died, who was the guy who really supported this hardcore, et cetera. But also we were talking with Blood for Blood about having them come back and how we can make that happen. And with this whole thing, I don't know if they'll ever be in the same stage. There's so many moving pieces with Blood, for Blood, that I'm, I'm not sure if they'd ever do it because it's almost like you need a fucking, you need everything to al- align for them to make it work. And I thought it would seem close, and that was something that we were working on. And then the minute COVID happened, I just knew, all right, anything possible is uh, out the fucking window. And so it's kind of a disappointing aspect to it. But I was working on Blood, for Blood,
0: Blood. Mm-hmm. That is like, like I'm going to be honest, out of all the hardcore shows I've ever been to, you know, a lot of bands come through fucking Detroit over the past you know, 17 years. The two that I've never seen is Blood for Blood and Death Threat, ever. And there's something happened, you know, when a Death Threat had, had come through a couple times, but like, I don't know, something happened where I couldn't go or whatnot. And like, you know, I was almost, almost guaranteed to see them, you know, almost because it seems like they play almost every year and the whole shit got shut down. I was hoping that they, they would have played, even though there wasn't, you know, any flyer released. I was going to be hopefully either Ramallah or blood for blood and fucking death threat. Then my life would be complete. <laughs> well, I feel like death threat
1: had a long period where they toured and then now they're in one of these great spots that bands get to where they don't need to tour and they could just play shows and, I think that that's what's going to happen is some of the bands, like Death Threats and all, you will see because people will be excited to start building these little bills back up. Um, I know festivals that are looking to just rerun the lineups that they announced for 2020. I'm sort of lucky that I had the flexibility where we weren't going to announce till May. So I had an incomplete lineup. But looking at what I would do versus other people would do, I'd say that I wouldn't be surprised if somewhere along the line the Midwest pulls death threat out and whatever comes after this like whatever. I don't even like I don't even know what the word you would call this. I hate everything about it. And the reason why I hate everything about it is because it's something every single person has to relate to in their own way. But with hardcore people, we're such first world problems, like I want to see this band. It's like you know, I have so many people in hardcore who are on the verge of being homeless, who don't have jobs. And, yet I get to read on Twitter that some 25-year-old kid's upset that he can't, he might have to get a job and not tour for a living. And it's like, I don't know if your band that's playing for a couple hundred people a night is really what you would call a living. But that's the difference between a 40-year-old dude with a union job and a 25-year-old kid in a touring band. So I want shows to come back, but I want them to come back in the right manner. And when I say right manner, I don't mean, I just mean that I want them to come back without like this fucking fervent chaos that I hear when I hear about everybody, like the bottleneck that I see popping up as far as like getting tours together and shit.
0: Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. And the ones you do feel, feel bad for is like, who are the ones who actually do make a living, like, you know, s- Scott Vogel and Freddie Madball and you know all them type of people who, you know, it seems like they're always constantly on tour, whether it's in you know the United States or in Europe. They spend a lot of time over there. And, you know, it just sucks really, really for them because you know, they're like, well, to me, the superstars of like the hardcore bands, you know, and they're always on tour and then them not coming you know, is money out of their pocket for them, you know, just to survive. Like no, you I know. agree. I, and not only do I agree, they're the exception to the
1: rule Because they've done it for so long And they've Their impact is so I mean Manball Has songs in other languages They, You know Terror the same thing Like not with the languages But they've touched everywhere in the globe mm-hmm. The globe Like yeah, The impact of their music Has Over time Just quantified like and then you tell someone, they tell someone. It's like a, like a, like a positive pyramid scheme. Every, I mean, I, I love that in 2020, I got to see Madball in front of a bunch of kids. And it was probably their first time seeing Madball and Killing Time. And that's the reason, again, why we put these old bands on these shows, these young bands, so the whole culture is exposed to each other. And, and so, yeah, with the, the bands that depend upon a living and who have promulgated the hardcore lifestyle across the earth and it's given everything back yeah it sucks for them but I, what i was getting as more like some young kid who's in a band who just doesn't want to grow up yet it's like look man there's a lot of people there's a lot of people who are going through this we need to think of a think of more things that are more more uh detrimental to real life than your band not touring you know there's people who's in their second or third generation businesses that are gonna lose their family business. That's just crazy, sad. Yeah, it is let's sad. talk about more positive stuff. This is
0: bummer. <laughs> <laughs> more positive stuff. Oh uh, that's way off topic, but you know, it's what they want to ask about. You I was just going through um some 856 shit the other day, and uh I came across ones called the Fugitive." Fuck Yeah. What is that? What the fuck is that shit?
1: <laughs> All right. So it, that was in 2012. I believe, yeah, the year 2010, it, 2010, 11, 12. I think the first year we didn't do a promo was 2015. Sonny and I started linking up to do a promo. And in 2011 was the first, like, good one. And we did, like, a mini movie. And it was like nothing like the fugitive. And then we had so much fun with that video um, that we actually made uh, a 30, I don't know, was it 25 or 35 minute movie? And uh, it's absolutely everything that you, if you ever were like, if you're ever concerned that I am like this super tough guy who just like only does certain things. The minute you see that video, all those things are thrown out, and we're just a bunch of silly bastards with a lot of dumb, dumb, too much time, and just did some really silly. It's a promotion movie that has nothing to do about this hardcore, but still encapsulates this hardcore. And then the year after that, we did. Oh fuck! You know what, dude? We did one in 2015. Maybe it was two that it was either 15 or 16. We did one. Oh, it was 16 and we did one. And it was making fun of the debates. And I was Donald Trump. And uh <laughs> we had Aaron from Jesus Peace. And he was that uh that guy, Ben, whatever from uh, like, Ben Michigan. Carson. Yeah, it was Ben Carson. Sleeping in the corner. Yeah. Yeah. We had someone being uh Bernie Sanders. Like we've made a bunch of joke promos that are funnier than like you know, um, I never wanted to have a promo that sounded like a monster truck. Like, come, check this out. This is hardcore. You know, like, yeah. so, but at the same time, I didn't want, I just didn't want a straight down the middle promo. So we just did some really goofy shit. We did it in my house. And then me and Sonny kept one up in each other in stupid shit that we would have to do. And it went from, we just came up with a script that was sort of around Willy Wonka, but not really. And then it just kind of went into a totally, it's just like all bad plots. It went to different plots. Um, So a lot of hardcore stars were involved in it. A lot of dudes from this is hardcore involved in it. And um, we shot some of it at the house I was living in. I just rewatched it. And a friend had said, why did you never tell me about this? I'm like, because it was older. Like we did it. That's all there is to it, you know? Yeah. Uh, But I, I, Anything that's silly and fun, I would like to be involved in. And uh, I grew up with Monty Python and Animal House and a lot of dark comedy. And I st- and I still really love irreverent um, parodies and just, you know, making fun of things. I think the best way to promote yourself is to not take yourself seriously. For sure. And to make fun of yourself at all costs. And so, you know, a lot of people talk shit but no one is better than no one is better than taking yourself down a notch than when you are making
0: fun of yourself wearing a Willy Wonka costume. <laughs> I thought that shit was so fucking funny. Um, <clears throat> but one of the questions I did have about that did, did you actually put like tickets all around Philly or is that just part of the plot? Like in the info, uh,
1: was we, there any we, tickets?
0: We, we had sunny
1: legitimately made those tickets. So the tickets were real. But the, the whole scene was staged. Uh, right. What's crazy is in the opening scene is this little redhead kid who uh, I had talked shit. I had talked shit to and threw off the stage. And uh, in the movie the year before, had said, I looked like a retarded Bobby Hill or something like this. Like, And I thought that was fucking the funniest thing ever. And so... Sonia give him like a legit airtime as like a DJ at a radio show. And that motherfucker doesn't go to shows no more or he doesn't go to the shows that we're involved in. It's like, look at your watch. Like, damn, that was what was he gone in four years? Like, what the fuck? That kid was great. The first, the first one we did, we made fun of me and we made fun of this is hardcore. And so it was me asking bands to play and on purpose, none of the bands wanted to play. And it was a lot of people being like, no, No, why would I do that? And then people making fun of this hardcore. And um, part of that was like to make fun of the whole thing that was going on where we would sell out immediately. And so we would sell out this ticket. It went from like a couple weeks before the fest to three or four days to 36 hours to 12 hours. We were totally sold out. And then we started getting shit on people and from people like, fuck this guy, you know, Blah, 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 which is why we moved to a bigger venue. For better or worse, This is Hardcore has a beautiful look at that venue and the AC and the accoutrements of being at a big venue was very cool, and we could never do the things that we need to do and become what we were without the big venue. But again, without Brian, Brian, we'll never do that again. And I think that the era of big This is Hardcore is cool, and now we're going to shift into new This is Hardcore. I don't know what that's going to be. But we needed to make fun at a, at, a, at a level that we couldn't even Surpass within a, a 10 minute video Because we put that video The first one out Right before we uh, we went on sale and announced So then when we did the Fugitive We we had a movie premiere for it We rented a popcorn shit Um I think I was gonna get a. I don't remember if me and Sonny Ran it Tuxes or not I don't think we did But uh we legitimately had popcorn and a movie screen, and we we definitely showed both movies, the first one and the second. And then um, I made trophies up for me and Sonny, and we had someone come give us a bouquet of flowers as we talked after the movie was over, completely making fun of the, the whole joke was like, no one's going to care about this movie, so let's make a movie premiere, and <laughs> we almost rented red carpets and we found out how much it costs to rent red carpets Like, oh, that's expensive, but like the, the ostentatiousness of making fun of the parody that we were already making fun of is the kind of where you get lost
0: in a loop of making fun of shit. Yeah. I thought it was fun, you know, to see, you know, just a different side of Joe hardcore himself, you know, the tough guy with the tattoos, you throwing people off the stage and, you, you, you know, then just to see just, make fun of yourself and and take everything you know kind of lighter you know it's a good thing to see because as you know your reputation you know throughout the years have have had ups and downs like the fucking tough scary guy joe hardcore you know then to see it you know you laugh at yourself is you know heartwarming
1: (laughs) i mean you gotta remember and, and i say this like with the most sincerity um uh, There's a band called Tribe 13, which I talked about with At uh, the Casualty Show They had a song called Joe Hardcore And Lon, my boy His vocal pattern is really like crazy So it's like You can barely hear half the shit he's saying Because he's singing so fast But that was like the pace of that band And so being called Joe Hardcore Was like a joke Because I was like a young idiot With long hair And fucking just looked like a maniac didn't look anything like a cool hardcore person, and so it was a diss. It was a diss. It was like, oh, yeah, fucking Joe Hardcore over there, and I think the song is kind of like, like make, making fun of like people who try to be too hardcore, and so it just was something that stuck. And then, you know, um, doing shows at a young age you know, everybody had a cool name. I didn't have, I didn't have, I had a shitty band that I don't even tell people the name of. And um, I would tell everybody, now we suck. We're not doing it. And so I've been Joe Hardcore for 25 years. Actually, no, 26 years now. And so um, I had to put some things on your shoulders that were like, you know, I was, you got to see pictures of me when I was 18, 19, I'm skinny as shit. I had my jaw broken. I was still moshing. I, I broke my jaw. I was drinking forties through a straw, still moshing, but we were also carrying guns and smoking dust and beating people with fucking hammers and literally moshing my bricks in our school bags. And then, you know, five years later, I'm in a national gang, and I'm carrying guns and we're getting in trouble and then three years after that i'm wearing armor in the middle of pennsylvania in a war and people were like oh what the fuck are you doing you're supposed to be this guy and it's like i it was a lot of different things you know i'm like the guy who book chose and loved hardcore and read read a lot of books was obsessed with zine culture and learned so much about hardcore punk from zine culture and to this day when a new hardcore book comes out i buy it i own so many fucking books on hardcore punk both love this culture and did probably things to set this culture back um i've never wasn't i never wasn't a nerd um i was exposed to a lot of book reading at a young age to the point where then later on i would get into mythologies and dungeon dragons through my older cousin um played dungeon dragons played a uh, with a miniature game called battle tech and kind of shifted out of that world when i started getting really involved in hardcore but none of that stuff left. And then um, it was only because of time and being away on tour and doing different shit and the people that I'm friends with doing different shit that I stopped linking up to play those kind of games. But still have such a crazy uh, relationship to all that kind of stuff that, yeah, like I might might have been beating people up, but still was going home and, you know, could talk to you for an hour about Dungeons and Dragons or about Rome or, you know, Viking history and then later when all the crew shit was, I was um, out on bail. I'm running this hardcore, about to be a dad for the third time. I'm taking care of my family. Yeah. I found sword fighting. and It was like an escape from my escape from my escape, you know? And I find that there are people who are who they are through and through. And I have letters, you know, like I, I, I still laugh at the dumbest stuff. And if anyone who's ever hung around me, I'm not biting on, you know, 16 D nails and just giving people hard looks. I'm breaking my friend's balls so bad and we're making fun of each other. And nothing is more fun than when someone makes fun of me. I find it to be the highest regard of respect when I get my balls broken. I never get upset. It's always like back and forth. And uh, I grew up in and around people that broke balls, being on a union job site, you get your balls broke about fucking everything. And you have to laugh at yourself and you have to go make fun of yourself. And the Joe hardcore construct is easy to make fun of just by like, Oh yeah. Who does he think he is? So I, I wanted to even tear that thing. Like I'll, I'll do a better job of making fun of me than you can. Right. And um, that exists out to this point, you know, like um, it's a weird, it's a weird position to be in to grow from a kid who just didn't want to be in the streets, getting into real trouble to finding hardcore to get into real trouble To being off the streets and having a real job and having a career in union construction, but still being so enamored and attached to the hardcore scene. And then to become someone who what I do enables people to travel from far off places once a year to come to the city and support these bands, there becomes a place of respect and a role shift puts responsibility on my shoulders. So you have to be cognizant of the role that you play in people's lives. So I had to meter some of the stuff that was outlandish about me down just because you don't want to be a character of yourself. And I kind of also got comfortable with who I am. Like, yeah, man, like there's a lot of shit that I am that is really cool and a lot of shit that I am that people think is nerdy. Somehow the nerdy shit about me became the coolest stuff and it fucking blows my mind. You know, like if you would have told me when I was 13 that all these kids would run around and love typo negative and all these bands that we were kind of like made fun of for liking. It would fucking blow my mind. I feel like at a 40 year old man, everything that we grew up on is the coolest shit ever. You know, where, where if you like star Wars as a kid, you know, like there's so many things. So it all kind of come full circle and I, I've never taken myself very seriously. And I've never had the time to take myself seriously. Cause I'm always on to the next thing, booking the next show, booking the next tour. The gang shit added them a whole nother layer to it There were so many micro things That were moving the whole The way things work so many times That I never had time to get Too self-absorbed I've always had a shitty self excuse me, I never always had a shitty self-image Not someone who really looks in the mirror much Very badly dressed You see me, I got a numb side of my face I spit when I talk Definitely not a pretty boy so I never had to worry about image Too much But I've always been Excited around people and Been able to laugh and make jokes and Take jokes and I find that There's a way that you Can the way that I Can mess show people to not take me Seriously is to do a movie Like that or to subsequently Have memes about me or when we did These different movies and different things I mean there was a movie that Sonny did where He made me look like a baby he Spread baby food all over my fucking face <laughs> <laughs> stupid thing ever and i think there's like a weird fucking sadistic sunny thing where sunny like he didn't tell me but he drew a map on my back and black magic marker he's like yeah i, I came up with this great idea to move the plot okay i gotta draw a map on your back and i just thought of think it is the funniest thing ever I'm like yeah, let's fucking do it it's so stupid and i i find stupid humor to be great because it it, it just sets up people to be like is this guy retarded? Is this guy like serious? Like, what's he doing this? So it's really just like you have to make fun of yourself. And I've never taken some of the maybe when I was really young, took something seriously, but everything's moved too quick to overanalyze it. And it's only now that I'm old or older doing the podcast. So there's a lot of introspection and a lot of self
0: realization in
1: conversation that I'm able to talk about this kind of stuff.
0: Yeah, I fucking like it, you know, but it's it's good to see that side of you, you know, and all the silly videos and the shit you've done, you know, compared to, you know, five years prior or three years prior when, you know, you had your own little feature on history channel when you did the gangland thing, you know, like, that's total opposite of how you think of yourself and how you said, you know, you feel like you feel more respected when somebody busts your balls. But on the thing, they portrayed you as such a, you know, intense and serious person. And it seemed like none of that was uh, highlighted on that, on the um, uh, gangland episode, you know? Now, the the
1: gangland was brought to me by someone else in the crew. And I was one foot in and one foot out at the time. As I said, I I had a family to think about. I had a bad situation with my kid's mother. I had a lot going on and I was constantly reliving mistakes that were made earlier in the crew shit. And yeah, at the same time, I didn't want to not be included because I felt as if, and if you've seen the episodes, FSU has, has a lot of different aspects to it, but I was very concerned about not having a presence in it and it just being skewed in one way. Or only being represented with certain things, and so I try to be a representative at the time for what I thought was my perspective of it. You know, like um, you want to—if someone's going to talk about things that you're involved in, and you're able to communicate, you should want to make sure that you have a stake in what's being said. In hindsight, obviously, I think I would have taken a different direction, but I was 27, turning 28 when that was recorded, and looking back, when I'm 40, I just kind of laugh. Every once in a blue moon, someone will see it from work. They're like, dude, what the fuck? And then we have a talk about it. And yeah. there was a minute where it was running like every Friday on like some TV show, and someone, I would get a phone call or a text of the screen. I've come to terms with it. I mean, we were also in Rolling Stone magazine for being
0: yeah, seen that in one. the
1: crew. And rightfully so, I think that there was a time when the ideology of, a punk rock gang and people there were people that were killed and there was things going on to spark that and so i i will just say that that was media and its focus at the time and we just happened to be something that the media wanted to speak on and um the funniest thing that happened on that show didn't air was that we were walking around South Street and I was telling stories. You see a clip of it where I'm outside talking about the TLA fight? Yeah. But um, 25 minutes before that, some young boy rolled up and was like, yeah, I'm going to take that camera. I'm like, yeah, you need to fall back. And the guy said, the guy shooting the film was like, you don't even know what show this is. And the guy's like, nah, man, fuck out of here. Yo, what's up with that camera? And the guy's like, well, this is for gangland. The guy's like, oh, use it again i'm like yeah you you want to get it you want hands like what you want to do come on like why are you trying to be an asshole and for a minute alfred of jim steaks i thought i was gonna bust this motherfucker in the face on the show and the guy's like nah i'm good i'm like Nah. like come on you want to steal his camera what's up like and this is like then i was ready to drop hands on anything it's just kind of like a funny I'm fired just, up yeah yeah i'm like yo all right now i'm getting tested in the cameras right now i'll bust your ass even worse for that and it's super funny that I didn't make it into the shot because I remember nah. Even the, the confrontation fuck. would have been good enough. You yeah, know? I, I think it's solely because he wasn't rolling, and oh, the guy yeah. was kind of like saying some dumb young boy sh- stupid shit. And for me, I was like, "Oh, bet let's fucking bang," <laughs> you know? Yeah, like, yeah. hey, you know. And I, yeah. I mean, at that time, at that time, I was facing ten years in jail. Um. Probably being on gangland is directly related to how I didn't beat the case clear and outright. But, you know, I also, you know, you roll some dice, you make decisions. I'm not upset about anything that I've done. And, and I say, I'm not upset about anything I've done because I've come to terms with how I got to that situation, where were my motivation and what I would do differently now. And there's plenty of things I've done in my life that probably are not acceptable by regular people. Aren't the best things to do in the hardcore world, but we're past that. And the people that, the people that matter don't hold me to that. You know, um, there was a time five years or four years ago where I made a comment on my friend's Facebook page with no context, to anything going on, which is the complete mistake on my end, where there was a fire in Oakland. I was out with my daughter who I rarely ever see. She was getting ready to go in the Navy. So we took her to a like a Christmas thing at Hershey Park. So I'm not on the internet. I'm driving into work. And I I, I used to listen to the same radio show every day because it would tell you traffic reports. And I'd to leave work by 6 a.m. So I'm listening. I hear blah, blah, blah. Ravers dying of fire. And I'm like, well, fucking ravers. Like, no big deal. Didn't think about it too much. And then a friend of mine was talking about how he wants to, he wants to, what hell he say? Oh, that's right. He wants to fix... Because he's an electrician, he wanted to fix a bunch of DIY places that don't have fires anymore. And my dumb ass, with no contacts and no understanding that this was like a punk place where there's transgender children or anything involved in this, was like, yeah f- fuck Raves, you know, like, uh, you know, electro- electronic music is blah, 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 which is so dumb because half of what I listen to now is electronic music and probably always have from the earliest times of me, going to gosh shows, new wave. You know, I have friends that are techno DJs. Like, there's all this just stupid shit that I should not have said. That's like a like a one comment that people will still write on shit I do. Like, well, he's the person who made this comment, and I've attached people have attached so many negative things to that comment. And it's like, yo, I used to smash people with a fucking hammer at shows. (laughs) You know, like so many physically bad things that I've done, and I've moved forward on it. This is the first year where someone hasn't. I'm the first person to bring this up, and it's like I only bring it up because it's it's like four years. It took four years, and people still will somehow bring it up in Twitter, and it's like, yeah, I I made a contact, I made a comment with no context because I'm a fucking idiot. And the lesson learned was there, like, Joe, you don't need to comment on everything that happens in this world, which was a smart lesson to learn. And hey, uh, maybe you should look into what you're saying before you say it because you stepped on a lot of people's emotions without. But the thing is, what people don't realize, and was like, well, I was a part of that scene. It's like, yeah, I had to call a friend, Gibby from Panic, who I've been friends with for a very long time, because it was actually one of his friends who died in a fire. So I right. had to call a friend and apologize and say, hey, man, I'm really fucking sorry. And he's like, I understand. He had a lot of bigger things going on. And also, regardless of this hardcore stuff, one of the guys who was involved in the production end and two people that I mistakenly had hang around and help us with shit i called he's like yeah i can't fuck with you no more and i was like dude you do understand no fuck that because he was so concerned that people were going to be like quote unquote cancel me that he was like i had i don't want to deal with them Mm -hmm. hey man it is what it is the same guy who now runs a very well-known music magazine that's not decibel used to be my friend who worked at noisy when he got fired at noisy he started this bullshit fake lamb goat And he sent me a text, hey, just letting you know, I'm going to have to do an article on this. And he was going to have to do an article on it because he had money that he needed to make. So he made some bullshit post. And that's the one that people still quote. So here's a guy who, when he was working for Noisy, we had a good link up and they would send us bands and it was cool. The minute he was trying to make a name for himself as a journalist, he put it out on the internet like promoter says horrible thing. And then my apology is still the same. If I know you and you're my friend and you really lost someone in that fire, I will give you an earnest apology. But if you're some kid on the internet who's just looking for a gotcha moment, like Joe is not a good person because he wrote this on the internet. And here is the comment. There's a a bunch of things in that comment because my friend Jesse took it down. There was a kid being like, when I see you, I'm going to spit in your face. I'm like, cool. Look forward to breaking your fucking jaw. I'm still serious. It's been four years. I never got my face spit on by some kid who lives in New Jersey. You know, there's all these immediate reactions that comes from shit that is written on the internet. And the con- context becomes less important than having this one singular second, the N-word. Like, oh, he said this on the internet. So he is a terrible, unredeemable loser of a human. And that's just the complete opposite of how real life works. You know, um, I watched my friends, I watched my friend have to go into a hospital and his sister was shot to death. And I had to live through a lot of crazy trauma stuff and watch my friends deal with so many hardships and my own family with crazy amount of hardships. And I've watched so many stories of redemption from people who have done things that you can redeem yourself from. If You're touching children or you're raping people you know you probably can't yeah you're probably there's no redemption there you just have a deficiency where you just can't be on planet earth (laughs) for sure a lot of other things drug habits theft just being just doing terrible fucked up shit or having so many bad things happen to you as a child that you take it out on the world and they redeem themselves as people and i say all this in relation to the gangland stuff where for me i don't even look at the gangland stuff in a negative i just look at oh well that's where i was at that time and look how far I'm at. That was 12 years ago this summer. And yeah. um, I bring the comment up as a like the juxtaposition of I was on fucking gangland and Rolling Stone for being in a gang and doing dumb shit and being associated people that were doing even crazier shit. And a lot of bad shit happened in that time period. And yet it's the comment out of context on a friend's private Facebook that people will slam me for today. It's a very weird world. And the only thing I say is the things that I've learned about it have made me communicate differently on the internet, not to hide my – I have to hide how I feel. No, I I realize that on the internet, without context, there's no point in communicating. So if I don't have something that can contextually be understood, I don't write anything on the internet. And I don't I, – I I, grew up loving murder junkies and Gigi Allen and some really crass fucked up punk rock <sighs> shit. So the fuck these guys and fuck this is – was very acceptable and what i've come to realize is that's not the energy the world needs so you don't see me say that that's kind of what i got on that whole thing
0: feel you well said you know <clears throat> just you know anything you know you're somewhat a public figure you know people know who you are and shit. they follow you so so i had to learn that as well
1: i think i i just i don't look at people any differently So I didn't realize that I myself have that kind of profile physically in the internet space of a profile and people know me, but don't know me. And I had to, had to realize that my communication online, uh, is a has effects and negative and positive, more positive now than negative. And so I had to like relearn that I didn't look at myself at that. You got to remember is getting up every morning to go pour concrete and just be a normal human and i looked at all my hardcore stuff as my outlet i didn't have aware like the awareness or the cognizance that people looked at me in a different light because i'm a doer i do things so i'm never never sitting around consulting myself or others on how am i portrayed i don't worry about that i just do you know so i don't think keep moving of how yeah i just keep it moving so i've been keeping it moving so long that i didn't have time to go wait a minute you know maybe this and I understand it a lot more clearly. So even that stupid comment became a great learning thing for me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, but so the so people who, who do talk shit or have something to say about you, know, whatever you said or your past, um, it seems most of them still realize that they can get caught at a show you know, whatever they say on the internet, you know, it's still, it still affect them in real life. You know, whether they show up, you know, to a show and, you know, in Philly or Detroit or if a New Jersey, someone's going to see it. Someone's going to recognize, you know, who said what, you know? So I think a lot of people keep their, their opinions to themselves for the most part.
1: Well, it's an easy. It's an easy thing to say. It's like,
0: when I see you, I'm going to.
1: Yeah. And then when you're not like, Oh no. Like I, to this day, like if there, if there's people that don't like me from shit. I did when I was 20 years old. I'm 40. <laughs> it's like, I can't help you, bro. And there's people that, <laughs> There's people that I, I especially at the fest, I have a thousand tasks in my head. I'm moving a million miles an hour. A four day fest feels like eight hours to me sometimes. It moves that fast. And there's people that are like, "Hey, I, I just wanted to say what's up to you." But uh, back in the day, we had this thing, and it's like, none of that. Like none, of, all of it matters, and none of it matters at the same time. You know, like every once in a blue moon, someone and I have like a legit. Life thing, but it's actually more. I say every person that I have a real life issue with, for real, are the people that are formally close to me that are no longer close to me. And anybody encountering me or had a bad mosh moment, or I punched your friend, or your friend got beat up, or maybe you know whatever, that's not even in. That's not even something I would react on. it Like when I say I wouldn't even act on it, I wouldn't even react on it. I would go, oh fuck yeah. Either it's something I don't remember. Or something that the consequences are so minimal to me, but they're more important to that person. Yeah. And so I try to tell people like, I'm so far from that human now. And I think that the newest iterations come out often. The more we push ourselves to not be the people that we would we were striving to be last year, all that shit changes. And so, yeah, I, 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 I'm still waiting to get my face spit on. And luckily, I, I don't know, man. I think that the hardcore scene has kind of moved. The hardcore scene has moved in a lot of different directions and conflict is minimal because everyone, I don't know, maybe they just deal it out with Twitter or maybe they're afraid to have conflict because they don't want to lose face where I grew up in a different scene. you get into a fight with someone, literally get into a fight and a show later you're hanging out laughing about it. And that's how we grew up in the street. And that's how we grew up in in the shows. But I think these younger folks specifically do not have that. So there's less actual physical contact and um i'm happy with who i am in 2020 and going into 21 and those of you who are griping on shit i did when i was a teen or didn't do when i was in my mid-20s or the fact i was involved in crew shit like it's growth you know no one's perfect
0: yeah yeah same goes for me there's lots of people who probably feel a certain way about me because the things i did are done but you know I've mean, reached out to a few of them, you know, like the Holy uh, Billy Madison thing. He reached out to that guy who's sitting with his rivals said, you know, some of the things I've done, you know, I've apologized for because I still see him at shows. I'm like, don't make it weird. So I'm going to reach out to them and say, Hey, I'm not the guy I used to be. I was in high school playing soccer and we
1: made fun of the wrestlers. And at 38, I actually I was 37 turned to 38 and I got into jujitsu jitsu getting into jujitsu i realized how strong and tough those high school wrestlers were that we were making fun of super bad because we were on the soccer team and i would billy madison them like i am so sorry that when we make like because <laughs> yeah. these motherfuckers when we were playing soccer we're literally grinding now i'm like fuck fuck playing soccer i
0: should have did wrestling i'd be so much better at jujitsu now that i'm older Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, mine was just a mushroom trip. You know, honestly, I woke up the next day, like I did, I did some shitty things to people. I need to apologize. And you know, you know that's yeah. movement forward. we we'll learn think- different ways, you know, <clears throat> well,
1: That's exactly it, but it's, it's all moving forward, you know?
0: Yeah. I, uh, that's it. Just I move forward, you know, do the best you can to be a good person or you make amends with what you have done and fucking move on. You still there?
1: Yeah, yeah. It was uh, okay. I, I thought you were continu- I thought you were gonna continue. No, guy, no, I'm no, I'm
0: good. No, no, it's you know, I'm at a p- pretty good conversation here so far.
1: Yeah, I think the world of hardcore,
0: because it's in a
1: short window, you gotta remember the time that people are in is very it varies. And then you know, like as, as you start looking at people that have been in it for longer and longer and longer. There's Vinny Stigma and Jimmy Murphy's Law and Kevin Seconds and all these different people that it has been there for 40 years. And then the longer time that you've been in, the less people have been in as long as you or around. And so what I've come to realize is so many people in hardcore or people, people who've had experiences within the hardcore scene, their time is a window three to years, five years, 10 years, and then they're on to real life, which is where the Peter Pan shit I was talking about comes in. So it's easier for people who are no longer around to hold a special place of anger or a frustration or being upset with at moment in time because their time in the hardcore thing was shorter and they put, A lot more emphasis on the well, this bad thing happened, so all of this is bad. And it's like, I've had so many bad things happen because of shows. I've had so many good things happen because of shows. And every important person in my life to this day, with the exception of my little sister and now my nephews, are the direct relationship to something, someone that I interact with directly firsthand or was introduced to from hardcore. So, hardcore is just giving me everything I've had in my life. And so, I hold it dear and it's there's no difference between the two. And until I'm in a L older point in my life, it's gonna be the same way. You know, maybe when I hit my mid 50s or so, I'll have something and maybe you know I'll pass it down. I don't I don't know. I don't want to even think about that. But what I was getting at is it's easier for people who have a shorter window of time to hold on to grudges because to them they they postulate on and go, oh, that's that involved in hardcore. And that guy's horrible forever. And then when they had, if they had the modern conversation with you, that you know, or you or I, they might be like, oh, wow, well, the person's completely different. Yeah. Because your little snapshot of the person that you had an interaction with, it's like a fucking Polaroid. That person's so much different in today's world. And I've given that same growth expectancy to people. Like not just expecting people to have me have growth, but I've given people that they're like, oh well, when I met them or when they had this interaction with them, they weren't a good person or they did something that I didn't agree with, but they're older now. So I'm sure they're totally different person.
0: Right. Yeah. <clears throat> well, shit, man. So with all that being said, <clears throat> for 2021 around the corner, I think there's going to be a, this is hardcore. I had planned to go
1: remember, remember or I should say, don't remember, but Remember that this article was at the end of August. So we shifted to July incrementally. We did it because first off, we were a week into when the college year was and going dating, dating ourselves here. I put a MySpace bulletin out being like, name three things you would change about this article. And the response back was this hardcore should be on this week of August because that's the week before college starts. Having never been in a college, despite living in Philadelphia, a big college city, Never really hit me the weekend that college starts. So I accidentally had started the fest a week or so into the college year. And the year we shifted was the first year we started having even bigger numbers because people could go to this arc or then start college. And then um, incrementally, as like Sound of Fury stopped being a thing, we eventually moved into the last week of July. And I think Santa Fury was going to be on the second week of July, or like they somehow or another, they ended up being the second or third week, like within a week of our our fest again in this new iteration of what Santa Fury is. So we're not stuck to being a certain weekend. And if all the people who have been bullshitting us for years, or this whole fucking year rather, are going to say that it's going to be till halfway through the year before things even start happening. The wisest thing for me to do is to have two separate dates held and a backup plan and try to make something happen, even if it's at the smallest level, just to be able to say, hey, well, we did something at 2021. And that was initially going to be the plan was to have something at a skate park until the city completely shut down that. And despite my punk rock fuck you attitude, you don't want to see people actually – You don't want to see people bring home COVID to somebody else, even if they're asymptomatic and all that. And you don't want to be someone who is careless with other people's health. And so there's enough people that really, really buy in and they're like masked up. They don't leave the house. Those people weren't coming to this hardcore. But the last thing we wanted to do was add to a spread or end up with $100,000 of fines or potentially even actually like criminal things. So I backed off doing it. I feel that we will have to watch and see, listen for how the restrictions will change right now. The restrictions are pretty serious in Philadelphia. Maybe they'll back down. I don't know, but my plan would say, keep the dates around the time we traditionally have done it over the last five years. And if we need to be later in the season, then, Hey man, it's a little bit more stripped down this hardcore. And then, you know, build off of it but i I, my plan is not to go back to the electric factory so i have a lot of flexibility in what i'm able to do and i really want to give somebody something in the form in the form of a real show so my heart and intention is to do that
0: awesome that's fucking great man only time will tell though you know but detroit's the same same way real real tough restrictions you know we can't go anywhere it seems maybe the fucking gym or let to get haircuts that's it you know no restaurants, none of that shit. So
1: yeah, we don't, we don't have gyms yet, but we do have, we do have, you know, some things going on for me specifically. I just want to see people engaging it in a live form. Yeah. Um, And I'll do everything I can to make it happen. Barring. I don't want to go fund me for a hundred thousand dollar fine. I don't need any more criminal shit. So (laughs) no shit. (laughs) I'm going to be a law abiding citizen. (laughs)
0: Come uh, July, August, September, twenty twenty one. One answer, one word. <clears throat> when I come to Philly, where do I get my first cheesesteak?
1: I gotta. I have a preface to this, and this, Philadelphia is big. Like we probably should be multiple small cities like Boston, and we'd be thriving. So the city is giant, and I need to say this to answer yeah, the question. If you're downtown. The place to go would be Angelo's right now. But if you were up near my neighborhood, I live near Delessandro's, which is uh, to me probably the best quality cheesesteak. Second to that, I always say that Jim's Roast Pork, which is it is a roast pork place, they have a banging fucking cheesesteak. I do not subscribe to Pat's GNOs at all. The only South Philly one, Angelo's is technically in South Philly, but um, I would say Angelo's Angelo's is the bougie spot. It's the new spot. I love Jim's. You could get away with saying Phillips. I don't fuck with Tony Luke's. I don't fuck with Pat's. I don't fuck with Geno's. I live closer to Delessandro's. And actually, the, one of the best benefits of COVID is Delessandro's used to be one of the most stressful situations to get a steak. Now you can call ahead, order, stand in a separate line because you can't go inside. And they actually fixed all the problems. When I hope that post-COVID they keep it. Because going to Delosandros was walking to a small place, getting in an insane clothes line, and just waiting for your name to get called, and it was just chaos. Now it's so orderly that I hope they keep it. But yeah, that's my
0: picks. Good. <clears throat> well, I wrote those down because I'm fucking coming. So uh, We're the show. yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm bring I'm bringing my. I'm a recording shit. So you might catch anybody at this is hardcore. I really think my plan. One of the things
1: I did outlet was like, we really should have booths. Set up so people can podcast from the fest, and I, and I really love now being involved with podcasting and hardcore. So, we're going to try to. We could be some. I'll, you're the second person I've said this to. I'm going to try to get a hardcore podcasting thing together in a live format for hardcore podcasts in its own right, on top
0: of the festival, and maybe in junction with the festival. That's fucking cool, man. This should so, be. It's such a big thing now. It's almost, you know. I'm glad that we wouldn't have people. Be included?
1: I'm glad that we have people that are documenting our culture and interesting people that are getting to speak. And there's obviously always going to be simple podcasts, and I say simple in the regard of like, oh, this band, like you know, trying to use it like a promotion. Those things exist. I, that's not my interest with it. Um, there's some fantastic people doing podcasts and. I think we could do some fun shit with it alongside the fest. And if the right, if the right situations are there for us, we definitely will do something like that. So I'd love to see you there. We've only sure. had one person be before. We have two people ever before be involved in our po- like SFS around the podcast. One is a guys who did Cinepunks and they would do a live one. And then um, in effect, cause they kind of had their own little, they had their own thing going for a minute. Those guys also would come, and do podcast stuff. And those are the only two people we've had at the fest. So it'll be cool to see more people do it at the fest.
0: I'll be there, man. Awesome. I appreciate you taking the time out Sunday Thank afternoon.
1: Thank you for thinking of me. No this, is good. no this
0: is good. No, no, you're important, you know, to the whole shit, you know, across the globe. You know, you've had all the bands, you've talked to all the different promoters, and you know, and I myself, I've never been in a band, never promoted. So if I can give something back in this form, you know, why the fuck not? <clears throat> I think, I
1: think you're on the right page. And I think that as you get better with what you're looking to do, I think that you have all the necessary traits to make sure that your direction is like your own space. And I think that someone needs to document the people around you and be it in like literal form of document or just have these people on. So they're going to on their time. There's so many people from the area. And like, uh, you live close so like you might be able to get Tesco V from the meat men. And that guy alone, his book's important, he's important, his, his zine was important. There's so many people in that area mm-hmm. yeah. because you guys are a Midwest place that it's harder to get seen in the same regard as the fucking New Yorks or you know LA's of the world. And so I think that you have a great spot to um illuminate people and give uh give them a voice, you know. Well thank you, Joe. Appreciate it. No, thank you for having me.
0: All right, man, I'm going to cut this off.
1: Brother, thank you.